Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, some of you may think that this is not exactly the best forum for me to say what I'm about to say, but I really couldn't let the moment pass without commenting on what's happened in the last couple of days. For those of you who don't know, Sean Engel, the former host of Just One of the Guys, passed away on Wednesday, December the 16th, 2015. And Sean was a guest on this show on a couple of occasions. Now, the fact is, Just One of the Guys, at the time that Trennis Magnus punches reality, Just One of the Guys was already very well underway. It was already very popular. You know, Sean's name in the podcasting community, it had already been very well established. And Sean really gained nothing by being my friend and coming on my show. I I mean, in, in terms of visibility or gaining new listeners or anything like that, there was really nothing in it for Sean to appear on my show, but he did anyway, because he loves comics, and he's a nice guy, and he wanted to help out somebody who was just getting started, and so he appeared on my show on not as many occasions as I would have liked, but that's just the way that our schedule worked out at the time, and he and I had loose plans to record some stuff after the new year. Now, Nothing had been set in stone because he was having health problems, as many of you know, but <clears throat> but we figured that we'd get it done sometime in January. You know, we, Basically, the idea was to just play it by ear, to see how things go. And the idea was that this was going to be a, a shoot-the-shit show. You know? I was going to ask what comics he's been reading lately, and then maybe make a couple of recommendations based on some stuff that I've been reading and I was also going to involve him in an upcoming mega series that was coming much later on and now that's never going to happen I've had to take people off of my schedule because they needed to reschedule or I've had to take them off my schedule because they just could not make it to the recording date hell I took one comic book writer off my schedule because he seriously pissed me off, but I've never had to take anybody off the schedule because they passed away. And I'm not especially looking forward to it either. To Sean's friends, his family, the people in the podcasting community that knew him, I'm so sorry. There are no words. As to Sean, rest in peace. Thank you for being my friend. You're already missed. Now enjoy the rest of the episode.
attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today... Today, I'm beginning an epic mega-series of mega-epicness. You see, we're getting closer and closer all the time to the theatrical release of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And guys, I'm not going to bullshit any of it. A Superman-Batman team-up movie is something I've wanted. It's something I've daydreamed about ever since I was nine fucking years old, all right? And so because of all the anticipation of all this, I've decided to launch a new epic mega-series that celebrates what Batman and Superman are all about. The plan for right now is to alternate episodes. Batman gets an episode, then Superman gets one, then Batman gets one, then Superman gets one, and so on. And then, of course, what do you you guys think the odds are that by the time this whole thing ends, there's going to be a storyline where Batman and Superman team up with each other? Probably pretty good. Now, even though a lot of Batman fans can behave like absolute pricks, and God knows they can... There are a lot of cool Batman stories out there. A shitload of them, in fact. So it's a little insane to let a few jerks ruin it for me, right? Anyway, I'm gonna have company for a few of these episodes. Yes, indeedy. A podcasting vassal has generously decided to join in with me for several of these Batman Superman shows. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I'm not going to beat around the bush here, people. John M. Wilson from the Avengers Inspirations podcast is here to join me for this episode, and rest assured, he's going to be back for several more episodes in the future. So, it's with great pleasure, I welcome back to the show, Mr. John M. Wilson. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I am doing well. How are you today? I am great. I am great. And I just want to, first first of all, thank you, not just for joining in on this show, but you've agreed to, as I say, you've agreed to join in for several episodes and I just really appreciate you taking the time to do that. This is actually a little bit of a time commitment on your part, especially given that I do tend to record a lot of this stuff pretty early on in advance. And your schedule, you know, being as you're a teacher, your availability is a little bit at a premium. And so, you know, first of all, I want you to know that I'm aware of that. And second of all, I want you to know that I really do appreciate that. You know, there's a million different things you could be doing right now, but you chose to spend this time with me and with my listeners. And I'm really grateful for that. Thank you very much. Well, as long as the check clears, you know, being your vassal is a pretty, uh, pretty nice, nice little gig. So, uh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear it. So now what you and I are, are going to be talking about uh, in this episode, we've actually got two Batman comics picked out that I don't know as I'd go so far as to call these things classics of the Bronze Age era. But I do think they are, first of all, very entertaining. And second of all, they, there is a in a weird kind of way, they do sort of encapsulate what the Bronze Age is all about. 
And honestly, I feel like I could do sort of an entire podcast unto itself about Batman and the Bronze Age. I'm not going to, but it feels like I probably could. And so, honestly, for those of you who have never really read any you know, Bronze Age Batman comics, what we're doing here is we're barely scratching the surface in terms of what Batman was really up to in the Bronze Age. The first one that we've got sort of on the docket here, this is Batman number 227. The title thereof is The Demon of Gotha's Mansion. And this is one of those covers that is rightly regarded as iconic for reasons obvious and perhaps not so obvious. Now, John, what did you think about this cover? This is one of those covers that I, in my mind, equate with the Bronze Age of Batman. I actually was surprised to find that it wasn't the first Denny O'Neill um, Neil Adams issue because although Denny O'Neill is writing the story, Neil Adams only does the cover just because this cover is touted so much as, you know, emblemic, if that's a word, emblematic maybe of their, of their run. Um, but yeah, it's a great cover. It evokes one of the old 1930s detective comics covers very intentionally, I believe. And yeah, it's spooky, it's creepy, and it really fits the story inside, which is a nice dark shadowsy kind of story. I couldn't agree more. And that cover, I believe, is Detective Comics number 31. Yes. And uh, for those interested, by the way, I'm going to be talking about that very story in a future episode. But we'll get back to that when we get back to that. Unfortunately, John's not going to be able to join me for that. But um, in any case, um, but yeah, that's exactly right, actually. It's this. We may as well uh, just go ahead and and tackle this right now. When I was a kid, um, I had to pester my mom quite a bit. But what I ended up doing was getting a copy of the greatest Batman stories ever told. And that was actually a crucial part of my introduction uh, to Batman as a character. And what basically what ended up happening is the 1989 uh, Tim Burton Batman film, the greatest Batman story uh, stories ever told compilation and the Adam West uh, TV show from the 1960s. Those three things basically served as my introduction to Batman. So from the get go, I was getting sort of both barrels from uh, Michael Keaton and Adam West. And then on top of all of that, as far as comics are concerned, I was getting everything from Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams to Marshall Rogers and uh, Steve Englehart, Bob Kane and Bill Finger in the early, like the butt crack of dawn for the uh, uh, for the for the Golden Age Batman, and just everything in between. And that was a, a an amazing way to be introduced uh, to the character. And because one of the things that you take away from that very clearly is that. There are so many different ways that Batman can be presented. Oh, yeah. And few of them have are absolutely without merit, you know? And so that's an important thing, I, I think, for a rookie Batman fan to understand. I mean, especially in 1989, you know, when Tim Burton's Batman was, I would say, very close to ubiquitous. It was important to understand that as cool as that may be, there is a lot more to Batman even than, uh, than that. And that was uh, very informative. But one of the things, actually two of the things that were in there, were actually the aforementioned Detective Comics number 31 with that classic cover that uh, John just mentioned. But then uh, this story, which is to say Batman number 227, 
wasn't actually reprinted in that volume, but there was a sort of a cover gallery in the back of the uh, in the back of the uh, volume, and this cover did appear there. And so this was one of those covers that was sort of in my mind, I guess, for a lot of years, long before I ever read this story. And there's something about those reprints that sometimes you would see these cover images of that would just demand that you read them, but unfortunately you don't have access to the issue. So, yeah. what, you know, what do you do? It was just, it was in a weird kind of way. It was, it's, it's like the comic book fanboy form of like torture or something. I don't know. <laughs> Keep it, keeping withheld from you. Basically. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's just a, uh, I was bit. actually getting into Batman around the same time. The um, the Batman movie was out. My brother and I were, I don't know, what was that, 89? I was 10. He was 9. So um, that was about the time we started getting comics from time to time. And Legends of the Dark Knight had started up around that time. We were able to get the previous issues we'd missed. So we were all about the current Batman comics of the day. I think our first Batman story we picked up was the um, the Scarecrow, Scarecrow three-parter where uh, Tim Drake either oh. puts on the costume or puts on a costume at the end of it. I think he puts on the costume at the end of it. Yeah, his um, costume, yeah. Yeah, but it, the one that opens up with Vicky Vale meeting some homeless people and being told she's eating rat. Anyways, um, so we did because DC was starting up their archives line around that time. Yes, they were. And so we also got some early runs of Detective Comics and got into early Batman that way. Now, we never had any exposure to Bronze Age Batman, and that is one era of Batman that – as little of it as I've read, I've enjoyed almost everything I've read from it. I, I think I'm going to find as I explore Batman further that that really is going to be my sort of sweet spot of Batman history. Because you're right, there's a lot of different interpretations of Batman. And I do like 90s Batman and, and Tim Drake and Nightfall and all that stuff. But I've read the – what's it called? The Untold Legend of the Batman? Mm-hmm. That three-part miniseries that sort of recaps his origin and everything. Right. And all of that, that just that just resonates with me a lot on what Batman's, you know, character and history should be like. So, anyways, when I sat down to read this these two issues for the podcast, I'd never read them before. But um, but yeah, this was some fun comics. I I couldn't agree more. And honestly, I mean, to me, the fun really starts right there on page one, where You've got Batman. He's uh, basically standing outside what looks like the – to me, the the sort of prototypical haunted manor, you know, the sort of haunted mansion. And uh, there's a there's a woman's outline in, in the only room that has any sort of light to it whatsoever. And honestly, out of context, actually looks kind of stalkery. Now, it gets put into context a little bit better later on, but at least, right. you know, at first blush, you know – one of those things that could be so easily misinterpreted. He's almost looking menacing there because he is kind of hunched over. He looks – if it weren't a Batman story, mm -hmm. he could be the menacing figure outside who's getting ready to do something bad to the woman. Agreed. And the – there's this really nice sort of uh, pulpy narration. Not by Batman. It's sort of this third-person um, you know, writer's narration. And it's it's just it's it's kind of 
it's just a little bit pulpy, a little bit hammy, and I just really enjoy it. It's got this entire issue, in fact, has sort of it's actually kind of unique in um, in uh, the Bronze Age Batman's uh, publishing history in that it has not to get too far ahead in the story, but it really does have a lot of um, paranormal and horror movie overtones to it. And generally, what people think of when they when they think of the Bronze Age, it, it tends to be more grounded and realistic stories with more human types of 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 characters, enemies, arch-villains and stuff. And that is not at all what we get in this story. And honestly, I'm a huge fan of mixing Batman with um, sort of horror movie elements and uh, supernatural story elements and things like that. I'm a big fan of doing that to begin with. So, it's a genre he fits really well into. I agree. And you know what? Your, you know what? Your estimation of that and mine, we we apparently we're a little bit in the minority there among Batman fans. But again, it, to me, all roads kind of lead back to the great to the greatest Batman stories ever told. Where, you know, literally from the get go, he was you know doing things like fighting you know vampires and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And those stories are all reprinted in in that uh, volume. And so to me, that's just a natural part of who Batman is and what he's all about. So the first time you meet Bruce Wayne, and this is the story you're going to be talking about in another episode. The first time you meet Bruce Wayne's girlfriend, she gets turned into a vampire. Exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, it's just, it's, uh, to me, it, it, it doesn't have, it, it's never a forced thing to have to do that. But, uh, I guess to get into the actual story credits though, story is, uh, is credited to Denny O'Neill and the art is done by Irv Nafik and Dick Giordano. Now, that's notable in this case because of the fact that this is not the the line style that I'm uh, accustomed to from Irv Novik. By this point, I think it'd be fair to say that the uh, Neil Adams effect has it was very well known at DC. His art style was known to be a major seller, and so that sort of Adam West light style that I more readily associate with Irv Novik, he pretty much jettisoned by this point and with neil's blessing he'd uh, taken on a more adams type of approach and it's not exactly perfect but it is perfect for this story and and it gets it gets the nice reviews in the letters columns from either this issue or future issues the there are letter writers who who herald who you know acclaimed the fact that his art style was looking more neil out neil's adams ish yeah it was a great marketing on his uh, on his part and you know, I, I, look, I don't want to derail this thing the minute we get started, but I mean, it, it always kind of felt to me like, I always wondered like what his personal thoughts on that were, you know, that this art style that he cultivated uh, all of those years, the public mood just like apparently overnight shifted and it became something else. And he had to sort of adapt his style that, let's face it, he worked very hard to attain in favor of this this other flavor that I mean the man's an artist so on the one hand I don't want to say he can only draw one way but on the other hand I don't know I mean I, I'm not I'm not really sure how best to put it into words but I always kind of wondered you know just what he what he must have thought about that yeah because I mean you said he's an artist he's not an actor he he he's doing things a particular way he's not just there to be whatever people want him to be he's he's trying to to make some sort of statement of the way he does things. So yeah, it'd be interesting. I imagine it's the kind of thing that lots of different people can react to lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. 
So it would be curious to hear what his particular thoughts are. Yeah, couldn't agree more. But anyway, the um, to move on to sort of the, the uh, second page in all of this, we get a uh, flashback to a few days earlier where um, a uh, a letter arrives for Alfred from his loving niece Daphne, basically just letting him know what her whereabouts are. She's checked into um, uh, basically a place where some really strange shit is going on. Uh, the house is remote and isolated, and the children I've been hired to tutor seem, to put it mildly, very odd indeed. And <laughs> anyway, so it's basically giving the characters, which is, you know, Bruce and Alfred, just enough to make them wonder what the hell's going on. Right. And one of the kind of interesting things about this, you know what? I, look, I realize that this was the 70s, and colorists had to just sort of catch as catch can, and they weren't necessarily worried about m always being completely, totally on model. But even by that standard, I mean, here we've got uh, Bruce Wayne with very, very, very brown hair. I mean, there's, you know, classically, he's always been portrayed with very dark, very black hair. Mm -hmm. And that is not the Bruce Wayne we see here. I mean, this is this is like a very waspy looking uh, Bruce Wayne that we've that we've got going on here. I just thought that was sort of interesting with that chestnut hair. Yeah. And Daphne is a character who's only been seen once before. Uh, I looked her up because I was like, oh, I didn't know there's a Daphne. Um, so, in fact, I don't know. She may end up never getting seen again after this story because she may just be one of those characters that got used for a story or two and abandoned. But um but she is somebody that readers for a little while would at least have a passing knowledge of. I think she popped up – like I can't speak for the rest of the 70s, but I do think she popped up uh, in the early 80s. I swear to think that in the lead-up to the pre-crisis Jason Todd's introduction, there was something, something going on with Daphne. She was in a story or maybe she wasn't in it, but goings-on related to Daphne were propelling the story. I forget what it was exactly, but uh, I swear to think that she was there for something. I and now that I, now that you've mentioned that I'm remembering that in more current comics that Batman Eternal story that was going some relative of Alfred's some young female relative was involved and I forget now who that was if it was a daughter or a niece or what but um but yeah some some it might be Daphne I never know hmm. and um I guess you know before we move too far away from that stuff I've always thought of Barbara Wilson from uh, Batman and Robin. If you think of her as, as sort of a movie version of Barbara Gordon, it really doesn't work. And so she's got a very unfortunate name. But when you think of her as sort of a, a weird sort of hybrid of Daphne Pennyworth and, um, golly, what was that girl's name? Kathy Kane, I think. No, Betty Kane. The Bat Bet, yeah, Betty Kane, yeah. Betty Kane, yeah. Then all at once, the Batman and Robin version of Batgirl, it's actually got a little bit better context. Now, I think, I don't know if there's any changing of fandom's mind when it comes to Batman and Robin. I seem to be the one, the only one in the room who, who digs that movie and, you know, whatever. But, you know, this is another one of those little interesting continuity tidbits that, you know, Batman and Robin wasn't just wasn't just inventing bullshit as it went along as much as we might have all all originally thought. So that's I, I just wanted to at least mention it. You know, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm just wanted to mention it. 
I've actually only seen it once, maybe twice back when it first came out. So I, I barely remember the film. I remember having sort of eh feelings on it, like not hating it, not loving it. Um, but you know, it was fun. <laughs> Fair enough. I had a, I had a fun time in the theater. So, well, I'm basically I had occasion to sort of reexamine it after. Yeah, I remember the end of the episode. Uh, well, oh, okay. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, re- if you were going to say you were going to re-examine for the show, I remember that episode. I don't know if you were going to tell another story. Oh, no. No. Well, it, it's sort of. I mean, basically, I guess like the genesis of all of that was um, I'd seen The Dark Knight Rises in the summer of 2012. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of – I came out of that movie feeling like, you know what? There were some really, really, really enjoyable parts of The Dark Knight Rises, but – I think for the most part, I think I'm kind of done with this overly dark, overly serious and somber uh, type of Batman. What I want now is something a little bit more fun. And let's face it, there was nothing dark, serious, or for that matter, pretentious about Batman and Robin. I watched (laughs) it about a week later, and I was amazed. I was fucking shocked how much I was enjoying myself as I was watching watching this movie that... Honestly, if you know, it feels like you know, fandom had kind of spoken on this a very long time ago, mm-hmm. and here I was having the time of my life, and I was thinking, you know what, I seriously misjudged this movie. And so, anyway, um, needless to say, uh, not here, not what we're here to talk about, but that's that was where it all sort of started for me. So, but um, anyway, so basically, what uh, Batman and or I should say Bruce and Alfred resolve is that Batman's going to check into this and so that pretty much leads us on over to page three where Batman finds himself in the well basically in the mountains a hundred miles from the nearest town but it never really tells us quite where this is or for that matter where this is in relation to Gotham City. But since it's the 70s there are no cell phones there is no communication except for maybe magical head comms with Alfred I don't know if he has magical head comms at this at this phase in the game or not. Um, well, if he does, he's not using it in this story, that's for sure. And um, so Batman comes across some very scary-looking uh, thugs, generic thug one and generic thug B, in the forest, uh, armed with torches and a giant fucking axe, I believe is what it's called. And what's that other thing that they've got? That giant- A scythe. That's a scythe? All right. Yeah. Okay. I, was, I wanted to call that like a sickle, but that's not really what it is. Um, all right. Fair enough. Well, being as this is a Batman comic, and being as it's the 70s, you know he's going to get attacked before too long. So Batman has got to, because, you know, I mean, let's face it, you got to put the guy into action. Batman's got a little bit of a brief fight with, uh, you know, the bad guys. And honestly, this is one of those, if you just, if you just, when I read comics, I tend to be very text-oriented. I tend to read the captions, and I tend to read the dialogue and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the subtleties and the nuances of the art sort of go by me and the reason for that is because when it comes when when it comes down to it i'm a writing type of guy i really don't know a whole lot about art or or i guess the fundamentals of of how to draw a comic book page whether it's you know anatomy or for that matter at times even pacing i'm not a, i'm not exactly the world's foremost expert on that but the coloring on on this uh, on these pages is amazing. The composition, um, you know, the the pacing of the action and everything it's it's incredibly well done. Now, 
is and this... I like the I like the lack of sound effects. I was gonna... not that I'm an anti sound effect guy, but I think for this sequence, I like the lack of sound effects. I do too. I've I've always sort of regarded that as moments when I don't know if it's the writer or the artist or the letterer or the editor, whoever. Somebody is trusting us with this aspect of of the story. You know, they don't need to. You know, I mean, I think it's sort of a trope at this point that when Spider-Man fires off his uh, his web shooters, you get thwip thwip. Right. Or when Wolverine, you know, pops his claws, it's always snicked. You know, and I think those are sort of tropes of those characters, and it's kind of endearing. But you don't necessarily need that moment when uh, Batman grabs that dude's axe and then hitches, uh, you know, pitches him against the tree trunk. You don't need this this massive bud. Oh, you know, they're probably also very intentionally distancing themselves from the TV show. That so that might be another reason why they're why they're not putting in the sound effects. That I didn't even think about, but that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, because at this point, this is 1970. 1970. Um, yeah, late 1970. So um, it's not that the Batman TV show is still leaving a stink on them, but I think they're just trying not to go back there. So. Um, but yeah, the the coloring is great. Whenever it comes to art, I just want to be able to tell what's going on mm-hmm. and follow follow the page and and let the action guide my eyes. And I like that Batman just takes these guys out. And I love the capture the top. I don't know why it says for long years this Batman has trained and other men armed though they be are no match for him. I like the this Batman because Denny O'Neill kind of does mark a new era mm-hmm. in the the comics and this batman that we have here this guy is going to take these two guys out because they're just guys they're just like you said thug one and thug b and he's he's going to take them down and he does and then he walks away yeah and he doesn't even give him a look back and it's just number one it's incredibly cool to watch but number two this is so typical of who batman was at the time at least in my opinion he didn't dwell over things he didn't i mean i think most people would need a moment to catch their breath and then they'd marvel at the fact that, holy crap, I just beat the snot out of two guys at the same time. I am the man. You know, because let's face it, be, taking on two guys at the same time, that's pretty fucking impressive, you know? And taking on two girls at the same time is even more impressive. For different reasons, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I just wasn't expecting you to say that. That's good. Oh, I'm leaving that in. But uh, it's just, he, he, he does what he needs to do, and then he just moves on. And... That plays for me. So then you get in the next page and you get this sort of Ra's al Ghul lookalike. It's like Ra's twin brother or something like that. You know, his less competent little brother mm-hmm. skulking around in the forest with um, – I'm running out of generic thug names here. Let, uh, let me think. Like Thug 4 and Thug C. And again, the the, the coloring on the page is – it's just very atmospheric. It's very monochromatic. And I'm a sucker for you know this type of um, coloring job in comics. You can't have it for everything on every page, but I always like it when it's, when it's done well. And here it is most assuredly done well with that big uh, torch being the only real source of light there in the, the dense underbrush of the forest and everything. And you've got these, let's face it, these just friggin' we're going to get more details about these guys in just a bit, but these just total weirdos 
wandering around in the uh, in the forest in the dead of night doing God only knows what. And then they start box. Yeah. And then they start talking about uh, the spirit of the demon. How do you pronounce this? Is this bulk or bale? I I was saying bulk. Bulk. Okay. Well, works fine for me. Fine. Anyway, it's and and here you've got Batman. He's watching the you know goings on and you know from a tree. And you could actually believe, you know what? He's actually high enough up, and these guys mm-hmm. are so sort of intent on what they're doing, they wouldn't notice that he's up there. Yeah, the art really sells the hiding. It sells the lack of light. Like you said, everything's monochromatic except for the flame, and that and that gives you the feeling of darkness without everything being just blacked and inked over. Um. So yeah, they're just walking along and he's listening to him, and then uh, he scurries on after him. He does, does this really cool leap from the tree at the bottom there. Yes, he does. Um, and I like, I like the cape in this comic a lot. It's a very inconsistent length, but mm-hmm. it seems to have a length that fits each individual picture. Like when he's walking, it you know barely goes down to his heels. When he's sitting in a tree, it's like bat's wings or a vulture's tail or something draping down behind him. Yeah, it's like a bed um, sheet, yeah. Yeah, a lot farther than it would be. And I really, really like how how it looks, the effect that it gives. I do too. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just incredibly well done. I love, it. it I almost feel like, you know, in, in some Batman stories, it's really the adventures of Batman and Batman's cape. And they're, <laughs> yeah. They're sort of in this thing together and, um, but he actually uh, takes the time uh, with his thought balloon to define what exactly a, a, a coven is. He says a coven, or he thinks, a coven is a, is a group dedicated to black magic. Now, how true that actually is, I, I don't actually know. I mean, I'm not a big expert on uh, you know, uh, magic or anything like that. I honestly don't know. I've always just sort of associated you know, covens and whatnot. To me, there's there's just a very nasty connotation to that. So then he goes on to call a bulk one of the nastiest creatures in mythology. Now, number one, I just hate that fucking word mythology because that's not mythology. It bulk is one of the nastiest creatures in myth. Mythology is the study of myth, asshole. But um, the other thing is that if it's really just myth, if this is all just sort of imaginary bullshit, then this is, at least theoretically, nothing to really worry about. If there is no bulk, then, you know, what's the problem exactly? And so, anyway, it's it, maybe it's just me being way too nitpicky with words here, but uh, I don't know. There you have it. I... I... Normally, I'm not sure why my brain didn't do this, but normally when I see something like that, I would actually go and look up the name to see if they're actually making it up or if there really is some sort of balk in mythology or myth in myth. And um, as I'm doing a quick search right now on the word balk, I am seeing nothing. So um, I think it's one of those made up myths that doesn't really exist in myth. But anyways, I wondered if this wasn't supposed to be a little bit of a. Uh, a shout out to the this sort of pagan myth, uh, god of myth uh, from uh, the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, when you heard all about something, something Baal, something, something Baal, and everyone. Oh uh, yeah. And I wondered if you know, you, you gotta, you kind of gotta figure that I, I think a lot of, probably more so 
at the time this comic book came out than now. I think uh, just Joe Sixpack American, he wasn't exactly an expert on uh, you know pagan religion or anything, but he at least knew the name Baal. Right. Probably more than people do these days. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm stretching on that one, but that's that that was literally the only connection I uh, that that I could think of that made any kind of sense whatsoever. And the reason I I sort of buy into that is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Denny O'Neill is actually Catholic. I'm not trying to drag the man's personal life into this, but that was just my my thought process on all this. So he was, you know, if he's Catholic, he's probably going to have some sort of awareness of that name. And it just it felt like it it added up. Yeah, might have might have decided to make a play on that name, and it's probably smart not to use an actual biblical name or an actual you know religious identity, and just sort of spin the name that way you don't you know hurt any feelings or get anyone misunderstanding you. Yeah, I I agree with that. But we um we get this girl um. Whenever Batman finally finds Daphne in a uh, dungeon, not a dungeon, but like a tower cell, uh, this girl Daphne is going to show up in all of the Batman comics that we look at today. Every time there's a blonde girl, she looks just like this girl. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's and, like the guy has one blonde girl that he draws. Um, yeah, pretty much. And I was going to say that it's um, – it's basically uh, Daphne Penny, uh, Pennyworth as portrayed by Jane Fonda. Yeah. From uh, Barbarella. And uh, like just that look, it just seems very similar to me. Maybe I'm just uh, stretching here, but that's just, you know, kind of got to figure, you know, she would have been uh, sort of famous even then, you know. So uh, I don't know. I think it makes sense, but maybe I'm wrong. It's just something about the shape of her head, the arch of her brows and everything. It just seems very Jane Fonda to me, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, sorry. What? She's she's wearing the old timey clothes, and she's complaining about everything. And I know that you're not a follower of the show, but there's a really old Doctor Who episode from like the 1960s where um, they rescue this this Victorian girl who's being held captive in a tower by some aliens. And as soon as I saw this, I thought of that. The people who who watch the show know what I'm talking about. Um, Victoria. She was a Victorian girl named Victoria, but um, she is surprised to see Batman. But there are times in these comics that we read that people don't act like they don't even know what a Batman is. So I was, I was kind of not really sure exactly how much she should know Batman or if she just happens to know the stories and knows the newspapers. And so when she sees him, she's like, Oh, the Batman. Oh yeah. Well, my, I don't know. I guess like my, my, my view of that was that Batman is, so he's probably famous in Gotham City, like how well known he is sort of worldwide. And again, this is just supposition. I'm not basing this on anything, but I always assumed that to the outside world, if they've heard of Batman, it's probably because they know somebody who lives in Gotham City who's probably seen Batman. And being as, let's face it, Daphne knows somebody who lives in Gotham City, odds are she's at least heard of Batman before. And so that was sort of the way that I always thought that it probably worked and you know, okay. um, Makes sense. I don't know. I, that could be me just projecting bullshit onto this that really doesn't belong. But one of the things about this page that I actually sort of liked is there's something that's sort of, and I mean this in the classical sense, there's something that's just very romantic about 
the hero scaling the castle wall to rescue the uh, the uh, maiden, and that's sort of what we're getting here. And in that, you know, Batman he, in a very non Adam West type of way, since you men- since you mentioned the uh, the fight from a few pages ago, he just sort of scales the uh, the wall, but it's more like he he sort of climbs the rope. He doesn't walk sideways up. Uh, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, the the classic Adam West shot where the the random TV uh, guest actor of the week is going to show up and talk to them out the window. Yeah, and they're whatever bullshit they've got going on. It's just it, it's like they needed to get Batman inside, you know, in a very sneaky way. And this was the best thing that they could think of. But it was almost I, I can almost see the editor's note saying, "Just don't have him walk sideways up the wall, dear God." <laughs> so. Maybe I'm wrong, though. Maybe Julie Schwartz wasn't... Maybe he was a little more open-minded than that. Who's to say? But um, either way, uh, they basically... Uh, we get a little bit of exposition here where we uh, discover, you know, basically what it is that's going on. Uh, you know, what Daphne's been up to. She's been, in a sense, sort of kidnapped. She was lured out to this castle-looking thing, this mansion, under what I can only call her Satan's own false pretenses. I mean, she wasn't even there to teach children they're just a pair of hideous dwarves and so batman and daphne may uh, try to make their escape but before they do one of the things that comes out is that daphne bears an unfriggin canny resemblance to a uh, the uh, portrait of a uh, of a young woman on a wall and let's face it that's basically daphne because i don't think irv novick really wanted to develop all that different a look <laughs> So uh, she's even wearing the same dress. How convenient is yeah. that? So anyway, because of the fact that the plot needs Batman now to have to fight his way to freedom, they don't take the more sensible exit of going right back out the window and into the night. No, no. They decide to make their escape by forcing uh, forcing the door open and then exiting through the castle, which ends up being just about the dumbest thing Batman's done all year. Because he plummets through an open trap door and finds himself ensnared by the villain of the piece. And now I'm actually not even seeing his name actually specifically said anywhere on on that page. They just call him the Elder. Yeah. It's only – wow, I only just noticed that. But anyway, he's as I say, he looks sort of like Rachel Ghoul's less competent little brother. And just to put in context, Ray Shagul is a very would be a very new character at this point in history. Yeah, and it this page right or this panel really this uh, this is a second panel on page eight where the two hideous dwarves are doing whatever it is that they're doing with Batman as he's kind of snared in the net. Uh, the elders look like his just basically the way he's drawn his appearance. It just seems very Neil Adams to me. Mm-hmm. And this is already a sort of Neil Adams flavored story to begin with, but that the way he looks, just that maniacal grin that he's got going, and I mean, you can just see the insanity in this man's eyes. I mean, this guy's just he, yeah, he's got a lot more than just one screw loose. I mean, this guy is gone. He's and it just the I guess the craziness of it. Uh, this is just it, it's really hard, I think, to draw mental instability in comics and not have it come off like a caricature like really the best example i can think of apart from this do you remember that um from a uh, did you ever read identity crisis 
That is one that I haven't read. Okay. All right. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the end of it for you then. But there's a moment um, in uh, the last issue. You'll know it when you see it, where the villain of the piece gets unmasked, and holy fucking cow, that person looks friggin' batshit nuts. All right, and you know it's like the mask has slipped away, and now it's just it's just insanity, and it's. Right there on the page, but it's not like the cross-eyed drooling, you know, stuff. No, just but the wide-eyed staring out. You know what your what your description is reminding me of. Um, are you an old school Star Trek watcher? A bit, yeah. There's an episode called "The Conscience of the King," where there's this troop of Shakespearean players who are taking a ride on the Enterprise, and um, the director of the group, his daughter, is one of the main actresses, and the director of the group is also accused of being this um, this really notorious bit from history, the sort of Stalin-esque kind of um, governor of a planet who oversaw the the massacre of thousands of people just to save lives, or with the excuse of saving lives. Anyway, long story short, at the end of the piece, the daughter loses her grip on reality. Mm-hmm. And um, her eyes just go wide and wild, and the things that she's saying, you know, she's obviously lost it. And um, it's really kind of traumatic and sad how the events of the story have affected this girl so much. It's increasingly sad because Kirk was totally hitting that. And now he's looking at what he was hitting, and he's like, oh my God, that's terrible. So, but yeah. Um, he does have this wide-eyed look. Now, I want to go back just one page. Sure, please do. The um, the the painting on the wall of the woman that looks like Daphne, that Daphne has been made to dress up like. Like, I think she's actually wearing not just the same looking dress. I think she's actually wearing that dress because she talks about having been made to wear old clothes, uh, which is kind of gross. Um but this is where the whole Dark Shadows idea kind of kicked in for me. I don't know how much you've seen of that show, if you've seen any of it at all. None. But um, but I'm pretty sure that there's almost an exact same plot in that old 1960s gothic soap opera of a person in the modern day looking exactly like a person in a painting and then that person in the painting being a ghost in the story. I'm pretty sure that happened in Dark Shadows. So whenever I saw this, I was like, oh. I, and since this is 1970 – I would be willing to put at least a dime on the idea that Danny O'Neill is drawing from that what would have been very, very popular in his day uh, TV show. Well, how do you feel about that? I mean, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call this a swipe exactly, but uh, like when I guess uh, comics or comic media like TV shows or what have you, when they sort of riff on popular uh, concepts and movies and shows and whatnot of their time, I mean – like what? What do you? How does that make you feel? It's one of those things that feels that I'm able to swallow more easily in older comics than in current comics, if that makes sense. Like, whenever I'm reading an old story, and I see that it's you know it was printed in you know 1960 whatever, and I see that there's a very obvious nod to something from the 60s, Star Trek or or Doc, uh, James Bond or something. Um, I'm like, oh, you know, cultural reference, that's fun because it makes me feel like it almost makes me feel like I'm in that day. And, you know, because I get what the writers and characters are getting. 
But when I read it in current comics, it doesn't always rub me the same way. Like I expect current comics to be very separate from pop culture, if that makes sense. I know that's hypocritical. It's not fair of me, but that's how my brain works on it. Okay. Well, fair enough. How about you? Um, it really, it, it depends. I mean, this is something that, uh, Smallville's, uh, as a show was sort of accused of all the time of, uh, you know, stealing this idea or that one. And usually what I found was that in the majority of cases, a lot of, a lot of that stuff was actually similarities, unintentional. In fact, one of the best examples I can think of, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but there was an episode of Smallville, I believe it was called um, Eternal uh, from the dreaded fourth season where everyone said that this was sort of a house of wax type of ripoff. But the thing was house of wax, it had come out, maybe a month before that episode aired and there's just no possible way just the timing of it doesn't add up there's no way that one could have had an like any kind of influence whatsoever on the other right it's it's impossible the other thing is when you look at like the raw concepts of it they really have nothing in common i mean in in that episode eternal uh, somebody has the ability to turn people into wax figures Whereas in the movie House of Wax, there's I think one of the victims gets uh, sort of encased in wax at one point, and then obviously you know that's gonna kill you. And so, but it, other than that one instance of it, it it just felt like you know people were sort of stretching to you know look for something to pick on the show about. Now in subsequent, and I, and I think that might have been part of it because as you're well aware, there was a lot of people just finding reasons to make fun of that show. Yes, there were. And, 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 and not at all in a fair and just manner. <laughs> yeah, no, and I actually have to there, – there comes a point in my Smallville retrospective where I have to start talking about that, and I have to do it in a way where I'm not naming names. And so that – so far, I mean, that's been a little bit of a pain in the balls because of the fact that – I mean, I know very well who's at fault and, like, who's to blame for, like, 90 percent of that stuff. And – to name that person's name would it, that would uh, win no friends. That would influence no people. It would just basically end up making new enemies for me. And so there's it's like on the one hand I have to criticize what that person has said, but I don't have the ability to put that in context and say, yeah, it's because of that fucking guy that you know Smallville's having to struggle with this to this day. And right. so um, anyway, but. Uh, but to be fair, though, there are instances when the show really did – again, I wouldn't go so far as to say swiped it, like certain ideas, but they did riff very closely on themes and conflicts from um, – from a, I don't know, from – I don't know, like a, a movie or something like that that was popular and well-known at the time. And you can't – And that can be fun to do. I mean, shoot, Chris Claremont's X-Men. How many times did he take popular culture and make it part of his story? I mean, he freaking brought the Starship Enterprise <laughs> in all but name into one of his first sagas. Um, Kitty Pride fought the alien from Alien, only it was a demon. Mm -hmm. um, the Legion of Superheroes is the is the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. Uh, 
the the whole crux of Lalandra and the Empire is totally Star Wars. There's there's so much in that, and yet that is heralded as one of the greatest aspects of comics history. So you it can be done and it can be well received. It seems like nowadays though people are too jaded to I say people. There are those who are too jaded to receive it. Um, but I don't know. I tend to like it. I, I I think that you were saying earlier about how you want to make sure you have your cart and horse in the right order because you'll accuse something of being a riff on something when there's just no possible way. I was hearing a review recently on one of those X-Men issues where the man thing showed up and the reviewer was basically writing off the man thing as he's just a copy of swamp thing. And, Ooh. and yeah, <laughs> man thing predates swamp thing. Right. <laughs> and, um, the, 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 the whole story behind that, about how the two creators of those two properties were college roommates and swapped ideas and and developed their own ideas of this, you know, bog monster. But they're very, very, very different beyond the basic thing. Well, fair enough. And, you know, oh, shit, we're all, we're off topic as it is. We are anyway, so, so far off topic. <laughs> yes, we are. But, you know, what, 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 what I mean, honestly, what's a little bit more? I think where I think what fucks people up is when you take that stuff and you move it outside of comic books that's when people start having problems and what i mean by that is i think most comic book fans i don't care how cinema literate they are most comic book fans could sit down and enjoy uh the long halloween and they could really get a uh, like a like a serious kick out of it that is a fun comic book story but if you were to turn that into like a live action film or an animated movie or something like that, or for that matter, uh, even just riff on you know a lot of the the ideas and concepts of the Long Halloween and a sort of episodic animated series or or just whatever else, basically anything except a comic book, the first thing out of anybody's mouth is always going to be that's a rip off of The Godfather. But it works in a comic book not just because of the fact that it's a superhero now. It's a, it, that that alone is one degree of separation. But when you put it in a comic book, you've got that crucial second degree of separation that I think makes all the difference. And I think people are – they're okay with um, different media riffing on other media. But the minute those two media overlap, even if the subject matter is otherwise completely separate, that's when people start getting uncomfortable. And so if you had done a comic book series called Smallville and it, and it riffed on I don't Saw – that I think people would have been willing to roll with. It's the fact that it was done as a TV show. That's when they start having problems. And maybe I'm wrong, but that's just the way I look at it. I'm not sure that Saw and Superman would ever want to uh, mingle, though. That seems like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> well, they did. And see, that's the thing. I mean, that was another episode of Smallville where um, I, I believe it was in the fifth season. I, I think it was an episode called Mercy. This guy who's wearing a sort of Doctor Doom mask he sort of torments Lionel and puts him through these sadistic games, and you cannot overlook the Saw influence there. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's just not possible. You know, I, I may not have known Saw when that episode aired, because I didn't watch that until I was an adult. Right. Um, well, I was an adult when, when Smallville started, but, um, you know, I was, I was kind of older. So um, I'd be interesting to get to that episode when you get there. Well, yeah, and it's it's a few years off yet, but uh, anyway, to get back on topic, though. So Batman and stuff. <laughs> yes, 
Yes. Well, well he's, he's, he, the story is almost over anyway. I mean, the guy has, he's done this really interesting, you know, delayed death trap of putting a noose around Batman and standing him on a block. But the block is very, very slowly lowering. Mm-hmm. And so Batman doesn't just get the uh, kick out the um, stool and snap your neck or just strangle you to death in five and t- 30 seconds. He gets a very slow approach of that death as he has to go on his tippy toes and such. And we get his inner monologue about what he's going to do to save his life. He tenses up his neck muscles to protect his trachea. Mm -hmm. And he swings himself off of that block to grab a torch. Now, here's the part where you have to have your um, degree of disbelief because he grabs the torch with his feet. And that's fine. He's flexible enough to swing his feet up over his head. And that's, you know, fine. But then he holds the torch on the rope long enough for the rope to uh, burn through. And this guy is only being supported by a noose around his neck. Yes. And, you know, it's Batman. It works. It's kind of cool. Um, but at the same time, it's like, there's no possible way. <laughs> yeah, no, there, no, there, there, there really isn't. But, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the Batman TV show just a minute ago. And that actually, that kind of puts this little death trap here into a, uh, a little bit different context. What you have is the villain. He's basically explaining how he's going to kill Batman in a very fucking sadistic way. And, uh, guys, look, I'm no expert on hanging. All right. But. I do like – I don't want to – it's kind of funny. We worked so hard to get back on topic, and I'm taking us back off topic. But all of this ties back to the story, I promise. <clears throat> One of the things I like to do is I'm – the older I get, the more I just like learning stuff, you know, uh, especially history. I mean science, math, those things, you know, whatever, not really my thing. But history, oh my god, I loves me some history, right? And so one of the things I did, I, I kind of got this boner a couple months ago <clears throat> to learn about um, that sort of interstitial period of, uh, of uh, Germany between the world wars, you know, the Weimar Republic. And then, of course, if you're going to learn anything at all about the Weimar Republic, that pretty much takes you over to the Third Reich, right? And if you learn anything about the Third Reich, sooner or later, you're going to end up at the Nuremberg Trials, where a crap load of... Uh, of uh, Germans were executed by hanging, right? And typically the standard operating procedure for something like this, you know, after, you know, the, uh, you know, one nation or the other has been vanquished, you know, if you've got to execute people, the usual way of doing that would have been a firing squad. That didn't happen. They basically set up this sort of industrial type of gallows so that a lot of people could be hung simultaneously, right? And so I'm not even completely sure really how, how legal that is, but anyway. And so what they ended up having to do was call in a sort of hanging specialist because of the fact that you can't just hang somebody and hope that works. If The way that um, the elder was planning to execute Batman, assuming that he knew anything at all about hanging, it would have taken Batman not even like 30 seconds or a full minute or something like that. We're looking at closer to like 30, maybe 40 minutes for Batman to finally die. And the reason for that is because he's being gradually lowered into place. 
And assuming the elder knew that, that's a really fucking sadistic way to kill somebody. I mean, here's a guy, he had guns in hand. He could have ended it right then and there. Of course, if he'd done that, there wouldn't have been much of a story here. Um, And we wouldn't have Batman 20 years later. Yeah, that's true. But I've often thought that, you know, or at least the way I've I've wanted to interpret this story is that he knew what, you know, what he was doing here, that it was going to take a very long time to kill Batman doing it this way. And he did it that way anyway, because that's just how much of a sick fuck the guy is. And when you think of it like that, I mean, that I don't know why, but for some reason, that just makes it so much easier for me to buy into the, um, you know, how Batman escapes, simply because of what he's escaping from. I mean, there is nobody in the world, and I do mean this knowing, knowing you know, that people really have died this way. I don't care who you are or what you've done. Nobody, nobody deserves to die this way. It's just, it, it's a terrible way to go. <clears throat> and so, you know, whatever bullshit Batman comes up with to escape from that, I'm not trying to minimize your point. In fact, I'm actually saying the opposite. I agree with you. But it's just, this is such a horrible way to go. I'm okay with pretty much anything Batman comes up with to escape from this. So, well, you know, and, and, if, and if you're right, if it really is 30 or 40 minutes of slow strangling to die, then it actually becomes more believable that he's sitting there choking and, 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 you know, strangling himself in the process of getting out of the strangling. Um, that actually kind of ups the pathos a bit because he's actually suffering a lot and trying to get himself free. Um, but then it works. Yeah. And I understand. I mean, I'm not like disagreeing with you. You know, I think that there are some, I'm trying to think of the, there are, I don't know, whatever. There are some, there are some difficulties with, you know, processing exactly how this works. It's just that I'm willing to overlook uh, a lot of that stuff. I mean, honestly, this is such a, an amazing vintage of Batman to begin with anyway. Yeah. You know, I mean, to me, the harder thing to believe is that he could uh, snag that torch so perfectly between his feet when, let's face it, <laughs> the more likely thing is he'd end up knocking it out of the fixture and then he's really fucked. Right. But, um, you know, then he'd just have to figure out some other kind of way of getting out. But the point is, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes you can learn uh, a few little strange Let's face it, that's a pretty bizarre fucking factoid to learn. And I don't know why, but that changes your entire perception of what a story is all about. And you're willing to overlook a certain amount of bullshit that you just weren't before <laughs> for some reason. So um, anyway, so, uh, wow, we spent a whole lot of time on this page, haven't we? We can move on. We can move on because then we get to the um, the more – this is where the – the trappings of the supernatural and the ideas of a supernatural, but it could all end up being a Scooby-Doo show at the end. This is where that goes away. We actually get into the supernatural because the ghost of the person in the painting actually shows up at this point. Um, it's the, the art is done like the same girl we saw like Daphne in the pink dress, but her face is always in shadow, which I think is an excellent touch uh, to sort of convey without saying a single word what's going on here. But the ghost of the ancient, you know, woman of the painting shows up and guides Batman to where he needs to go. Yes. And on the one hand, I would almost, 
the only reason I'm not going to call this, you know, a sort of deus, deus ex machina type of a solution is that we find out she's actually got a very personal stake in what's going on in all, uh, all of this. But you are right. This is the moment when this is truly taken. Everything that we've seen up to this point, it could be the sort of the rantings and ravings of a madman, you know, and uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <clears throat> the man's come, <clears throat> excuse me. The man's completely insane. And so, you know, he, you know, there's what he believes is going on. There's what he believes he's doing. And then there's what he's in fact doing, which is just killing innocent people. But there is no demon. There is none of that. And this is the moment, like you say, this stops being a Scooby-Doo story. And this truly does transcend into true, I think, horror movie territory now. I mean, if we weren't there before, we're definitely there now. Where yeah. this is a re- full-on fucking ghost. Let's just call it what it is. And as I say, you know, I'm perfectly fine with Batman mixing with, uh, you know, these sorts of story elements because, you know, from the get-go, that was a core part of, you know, my perceptions of who Batman is. You know, ever since, you know, like going back to the time, I swear to God, I was like eight years old or I had just turned nine maybe. And, you know, this is something that's been with me for, at this point, the vast majority of my life and almost all of my Batman fandom, give or take, you know, what do you think, like four months or something like that? So mm-hmm. um, this, I'm, I'm totally fine with all of this. But the, re- the reason I'm being a little bit of a pain in the ass about it here is because uh, I've seen people who say that this is the moment where the story goes off the rails for him, and I just cannot relate to that. No, I mean, Batman has done lots of horror over the years. I mean, one of the most popular Batman stories is that, what is it, Red Rain? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And, you know, that's where Batman becomes, a, or, or either becomes or runs into, I know over the course of the trilogy he becomes, but in that first installment, he runs into vampires, full-on, real, honest to honest to Dracula vampires. Honest to Vlad, that would be a good pun. Um <laughs> So as long as he's not like fighting green eyed aliens with six arms or running across giant typewriters, I'm okay with Batman doing just about anything because he is a character that fits into so many different um, genres. I mean, this is this is ostensibly a detective story. But it's a detective story by, you know, it's that's the gateway into the gothic horror element that we're actually dealing with. Um, And so you take what Batman is and put him into a situation where that character concept flourishes. I agree. And, you know, the the thing about it is I would – I'd almost be tempted to say that this was kind of foreshadowed on the uh, – on the cover. You know, this is one of those things that really shouldn't have caught us off guard here, because if you think about it, that cover, yes, it is a, a an homage to that classic Detective Comics cover that uh, that we were talking about before. But if you look closely, um, the woman on the cover, it could be Daphne or it could be the ghost. And if you look at her eyes on the cover, they're completely blank. They're just totally white. Mm. And it could be that, you know, that's just a printing issue that's going on there. We're not supposed to take that literally. Or it could be that, you know what, this is in fact a ghost and her eyes truly are white. And so it it works, depending on how you want to look at it, it sort of works either way. And so I would almost want to say that, you know, they sort of tipped us off about this early on with the cover. And the cover it's homaging is the cover to that vampire story. 
Yeah, and that was so. the other yeah. <laughs> but um but then we get to a sort of um it's a scene that evokes Salem Witch Trials, the woman bound and gagged on the platform while everyone around her with pitchforks is screaming about her. But instead of a witch trial, they're all chanting to call a demon. Mm-hmm. Um, and crazy elder guy, Heathrow, elder Heathrow, mm-hmm. has a three-pronged pitchfork. And I think he is about to stab her in the heart mm-hmm. when – a wavering figure seems to swell from the dark and the odor becomes a choking stench. And is that the beginning of the manifestation of the demon? Then Batman interrupts it. I wasn't exactly sure what was going on there. I thought so. Yes. I basically got the idea that, you know, this is sort of the uh, preparation of, uh, of a bulk coming into a, you know, the physical realm. And then uh, Batman, um, either through ignorance or because that's just how big his balls are, uh, steps over that and sort of um, he, he dissipates not only the sort of uh, vapor form that uh, uh, bulk was starting to take, but he, but he uh, in, in so doing, he sort of disrupts the process, which eliminates bulk anyway. But I mean, I got to tell you, man, I mean, this everybody in life has sort of got their own They've, they've got a button. You know, for some people, it's sharks. For other people, it's, um, I don't know, it's clowns. Or I don't know, but everybody's got, a, got uh, I guess, a deep, dark fear. Mm-hmm. And mine has always been, shall we say, the dark forces. You know, people can call it superstitious. They're welcome to call it whatever they want. I believe shit like this really does exist. And, you know, to say, you know, is it like commonplace? Like you're going to see this when you go to 7-Eleven to pick up a slushie? Well, well it, depends perhaps, on, it depends on what part of town you're in. Yeah, well, yeah. and Or actually, I think what part of the country you're in, but <laughs> or the world maybe. But either way, I do think that things like this, just I've seen a lot of weird shit over the years. And I don't feel that something like this is at all out of the, the realm of uh, possibility here. And so for Batman to be as fearless as he is... I'm sorry, this is... I, I would take one look at that and think, okay, you know what? Daphne's just going to have to win this one without me. I, I, I can't do this, you know? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, he just, uh, he just sort of pimps in there. And once again, you know, we have this sort of, this is another one of those things that makes me believe that this is, it, it's not just, it's not just idle bullshit that's going on here. They're, they really are in the middle of doing a real trance because all of their port, uh, all of their torches are colored green. I mean, we're right back to the sort of monochromatic coloring that I'm just, I, I'm always a sucker for. Their, their torches are, are green. Somehow you have these green flames. And it, it sort of casts this this eerie green light over the whole ceremony and all the characters and stuff. And, of course, you, you know, you've got Daphne. She's strapped down, and she looks like she's about to shit herself. And who could blame her? And um, But don't mess up the dress. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, because we may need it again a few, in a few centuries. So, uh, <laughs> And how do you explain that to the dry cleaners? I mean, really? You right. Know? So either way. It, it it's just it's it was a bad high a bad trip yeah if you want to look at it that way sure <laughs> and you know it, it's kind of funny to me that in you mentioned legends of the dark knight earlier and that story alternately goes out of its way to to downplay the um the supernatural elements the, the shaman story yeah um 
except at one point it does introduce a little bit of ambiguity. You know that you know uh, there there were real bullets being fired out of that gun, and Batman wouldn't have been protected against him. So how the hell did he not die? But mm-hmm. somehow he didn't. And so it's like on the one hand, they there was just enough, but it wasn't overpowering. And I think that's sort of the difference between the market that uh, that Shaman came out in versus this one, where I think Denny O'Neill was actually very well. He was very well prepared to err on the side of going too supernatural. I mean, it's better to be too supernatural than to be too Adam West, perhaps. And so I think that's... And I think the mindset of the 70s was really up for that sort of thing. I mean, the 70s was a really weird time for spirituality and for, for religion and everything because you had a whole lot of just wide open acceptance of anything that felt supernatural or paranormal. Mm-hmm. And yet so much of it was done under the trappings of Christian language and Christian uh, ideology. Mm-hmm. So it was it was this weird blend of paganism and, and Christian thought mm-hmm. in the 70s that it was just that was just pervasive. Um, and that's the kind of era that launched um, Roy Thomas's, not Jim Starlin's, but Roy Thomas's Adam Warlock series, yes. which is an entire commentary and, and metaphor of of Christian ideology. So it's this idea of bringing forth a demon and the visuals that evoke the Salem witch trials and and um, like you said, Balk maybe uh, evoking the name Baal and Baal in people's minds. Um, I think it it plays right to the market of the day in, in a way that maybe not so easily would be accomplished today. I agree. Well, and yeah, I mean, like, you're right because of the fact, you know, how and I don't mean this in a greed sense, but more in like the, the philosophical sense, how materialistic uh, a lot of people tend to be these days. And so, um, yeah, that's actually a, uh, that's a, an amazingly good point. Uh, thank you. I, w- I would never have thought to put it like that, but that's a, that's a really good point. And you're right. This is the same decade that saw the rise of the Moonies, for God's sake. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone had their head screwed on straight in the 70s. So, and I'll go ahead and take advantage of my own train of thought to plug um, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast that um, we're at to talk about the 1970s Adam Warlock series. So there you go. Oh, badass. All right. And where, <laughs> uh, where is it that people can find that? What's the web address? It's, it's actually not my show. It's just one that I'm on. Um, but if you do a search, uh, there's a Tumblr page that I don't remember the actual address for. But do a search for Resurrections, Adam Warlock, and you will find find the site. All right. Very cool. Now, uh, what else do you have to say about this page? Hold on, I gotta get back open and get it closed. Um, not a whole lot. We're, we're we're quickly reaching the end of the story, and the story is one that um, I feel has a nice closing to it. It doesn't just sort of cut off and end like the, like the next one we're going to talk about. Um, Batman, you know, he throws the elder into the crowd, and everyone runs away and flees because everything has just gone to pot. They were all in a frenzy to try to summon this demon. The demon started to come, and then Batman showed up. Almost, I wonder if some of the people thought that maybe the demon turned into Batman. Mm-hmm. And now this demon turned into Batman, or or this demon taken form in maybe some people's eyes, throws the elder at them, and they all run away in fear. Yeah. And 
That's a good point, actually. Elder has a heart attack and he saves the pretty girl. Right. But the one element of this that I didn't really feel was the intense love for the ghost girl in the painting. Yes. I don't know. I mean, that almost seemed more like what, what is it like? Suck you, uh, suck succubus. Yeah. I could almost see that except that I've never really associated that with ghosts. I always thought that was supposed to be some other, some other creature that took human form, but I don't know. And I don't even think that was, it was more like fascination or I don't know. It wasn't like, I don't know what the hell to call that. I never really knew what the hell a succubus even really was. I just thought I, yeah, my daughter could tell you cause she knows all about Greek mythology and she, she would know exactly what that was all about, but she's not here. Damn it, um, Lily. Where are you? When, when, <laughs> I so I don't know. It's, I didn't really get that part of the story either. That was actually going to be one of my little final notes here that uh, what the fuck was up with that? There's a passing line earlier in the story about how he feels a drawing, a, you know, a longing or a drawing to the painting, but it's only a passing line. It doesn't really have any weight at that point in the story. And to like make it really this big thing for Batman later just seems, I don't know out of place. Yeah. Very strange. Well, but it's like the one disappointing note in what I thought was a fantastic gothic horror story for Batman. I agree. It's just that, you know, the, the thing about it that, I mean, Batman is, he's already got every motivation he can to help Daphne. And in so doing, he's going to help the ghost. And so he doesn't need that sort of artificial love, whatever you want to call it. He doesn't really need that as a, as a motivator at this point. And so the only thing I can think of is that somebody just, they felt like they needed to sell the, the fact that no, this isn't just, you know, a random stranger or it's not, you know, something that's happening in, in Batman's mind. This is a real ghost. And this is the sort of power that they, they can have over people. And I, I don't know. I don't think it, it works especially well. And that literally is the very best I can come up with in terms of, trying to find some sort of an explanation. So I, I truly don't know. No idea. What if instead they had ended with um, Batman and Daphne walking off and this turning into a romantic subplot for Bruce Wayne and Daphne? I would have actually been okay with that. Um, I don't honestly, I mean, I'm no, that may even very well be what ended up happening. It's just, I, I truly don't know. But if, but either way, I mean, I actually would have been just fine with that. It's I always felt like, the like any love interest that you're going to give Batman, one of two things is eventually going to happen. She's going to dump him or she's going to die. And I don't think Alfred was necessarily ready to lose a family member. And I think he knows Batman's history pretty well by this point. I think that could have been some kind of interesting conflict for those two. So, uh, Hey, I'm Batman. You want to know my secret identity? <laughs> 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 Sorry, oh, those, those Lego movies, I love them. Yeah, they're funny. Yeah, my parents are dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's pretty much the end of the story, right there. Uh, you, uh, you've kind of got this, um, this sort of awkward panel at the very end where Batman's sort of weeping over the uh, the portrait of the uh, ghost, and um, that's again an interesting way to end any Batman story where he's kind of crying like a bitch, but otherwise it's. Uh, so really, entertain, like you say, really in, uh, entertaining and very 
uh, I think, for its time, very unique sort of gothic horror story that somebody obviously went pretty fucking far out of their way to emphasize that, you know, whatever preconceptions people may have may have still had even then about Batman, that's not the character DC's publishing anymore and no. hasn't been for quite a while. And um, honestly, just fuck it, because of the fact that, you know, we're, we're on the subject anyway, I don't completely credit that to Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. I mean, if you look at the, uh, I want to say probably from about 1968 to all through 69 and then through a good bit of 1970, what you see are these amazingly well-written um, and well-drawn stories by Frank Robbins and Irv Novick, which they kind of looked like the 1960s uh, TV show a little bit. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to call them dark, but they were very fucking poorly lit. And it was, I, I think it's, it, it, I, those stories had a very, I, I just find that like the style and atmosphere of those stories very uh, captivating. They took place mostly at night, but I wouldn't say that they're dealing with really heavy, dense and dark subject matter. So you have Batman as a sort of adventurous, uh, sort of swashbuckling action hero in the context of stories that are taking place mostly at night. He really is a creature of the night. And I would almost want to compare it to the the sort of headspace that we found Batman in at the beginning of Batman Forever, where he's not necessarily angsting about every single thing that comes his way. He's very effectual and, and you know good at what he does. But there is still that seriousness that he's not exactly cracking smiles every five minutes either. And, right. you know, making jokes and stuff like that. And so I always thought that was a really interesting middle ground. And just between you, me, and my headset, I actually would have... I would love to see the return of that type of Batman where it really is a very fun story to read. You've got these adventures with Robin and Batgirl pops up all the time. But it's not necessarily the silliness that people associate with Adam West. And it's also not so grounded and... I don't want to say pretentious as the Neil Adams, uh, Denny O'Neill stuff, but it is, it's still a lot more, it's, it's serious, but more fun at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I kind of would like Batman to sort of do what Daredevil has done in recent years, where we acknowledge the Frank Miller shadow in our storytelling, Mm -hmm. but we're also over here telling a different kind of story than what's been done over and over again for the past, what is it, 30 years now? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do tend to enjoy modern Batman stories, but I would like, like you said, for there to be a, maybe just a little bit of, a, of an increase of lightness in the storytelling. Not everything has to be so goddamn heavy and weighing on Bruce Wayne's psyche. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon because Batman sells like hotcakes. I agree. Well, and the moment that I, that I really said, you know what? I think I'm really just fucking done with this type of dark Batman. And I mean, in comics now, I mean, Dark Knight Rises was kind of the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, at least as far as live action is concerned. But in comics, what did it was Batman Earth One Volume One the birthday boy and 
that is everything that should not be in a comic book, in my opinion. That is, there is something that's just so real life, so almost like, uh, like Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy about it. That I'm sorry, that is, that's just sick. Is sick, and I that's I don't need to read that least of all in a Batman story. So I don't know. I mean, I I just think I'm kind of done with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to see that with the Corinthian and Sandman, or with that one story in one of the early issues of Spawn, you know, because that's Sandman. Billy Kincaid. That's, yeah. yeah, Billy Kincaid. That's Sandman. That's Spawn. You expect there to be some twisted shit. Batman superhero comics. I mean, yeah, you can have darkness and you can have ideas. You don't have to take it to the umpteenth degree of twistedness. Um, because face it, I mean, we we have enough of that in real life as it is. I agree. Well, anyway, and I I don't want to end this on a sort of down note. I really did enjoy this story. The art, no, this is great. Yeah, the the art. Especially when you consider that, you know, I think um, Irv Novik would have still been kind of settling into this style. You wouldn't necessarily think that based on the art, but it's just that, you know, this was... He hadn't done very many stories in this style, so this had to be foreign to him. But you wouldn't guess that because the, 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 the work is just top shelf, at least in my opinion. And again, you, can, you just can't beat that cover. I mean, sometimes I, I think artists will come up with a cover... It's almost. I would go so far, so far as to say that it's it's almost better than any possible story you could put underneath it. And I don't mean that as a slam on this story, but I do think that's kind of the case here, where there's so much potential, there's so much atmosphere from from this art. I mean, this is graphic art, and you know, I don't think the story completely measures up because of the fact that you know what, the minute you you commit to any story now you're limiting what's possible and so um that's not a slam on the story i love the story i love the art i really love this cover this is friggin' this is this is in my top 10 of batman covers of all time and uh so i really i mean at the very least i mean i'm not asking anybody to read this story if it doesn't sound interesting to you fuck's sake man have a little bit of respect for yourself and at least google this cover image batman number 227 the, de- the uh, Demon of Gothis Mansion. This is a phenomenal cover. This is some Neil Adams uh, career best, in my opinion. I agree. It, it's good to get your stuff. Um, All right, now, do you have any parting shots for this uh, issue before we uh, take our little break here? No, I, I had never read it before this episode, and it was, it was a very surprising and enga- engaging read. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had a, I had a, a blast with it too. So, all right. Well then, uh, that's pretty much it then, uh, f- uh, for this segment. So if you guys would, uh, just sit tight. I'm going to play a couple of promos, probably, uh, from John zone podcast. Uh, he's going to talk more about that in, uh, at the end of the next segment, but, um, you know, just to kind of give him a little bit of free press right now, there's, uh, Avengers inspirations. So, um, you know, that's definitely going to be one of the things that, uh, you know, you guys are going to want to check out. But uh, at least for right now, uh, just sit tight. We'll be right back with you as soon as possible.
Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm-hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. Sounds like an Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found. <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. I'm back now, and I've still got John M. Wilson with me. We're going to be talking about another uh, Bronze Age Batman comic book. This is uh, Batman. Uh, num- where is the fucking issue? Ah, Batman number 234. They do hide those things sometimes, don't they? A little bit. Because I don't want you to know that it has a number. Yeah, well, I mean, there are so many numbers on this thing already. You've got Two-Face, 25 Cents. I mean, they really do kind of hide all those numbers on there, Trent said, in an attempt to look less stupid. <laughs> now, this cover illustration... You can try. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> oh, well, I actually did. That's up for grabs. So, um, but this cover is... I think this is also done by Neil Adams, but... Yeah. Um, not quite as powerful as uh, the cover uh, for uh, the last issue that we were talking about, Batman number 227. This is a little bit more 
literal, uh, I think, in some ways, and that it's Batman, he's in peril, he's about to drown, he's uh, basically strapped to the uh, masthead on, on uh, this, what looks like a sinking ship, and you've got the specter of Two-Face lurking over his shoulder, but I don't know why, and I'm at a loss, actually, to think of a better cover. I mean, this is really about as good as anything I'd be able to think of. I don't know why, but especially as compared to the cover of Batman number 227, this is a little bit weak sauce, but then again, what does compare to that cover, right? So Right. I think it's just a, a, a complete difference in genre. I mean, that was gothic horror, and it really, really resonated well. This is... This is it's a it's a perilous adventure cover, and um, based on this isn't to 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 put the story down from the from the onset because I'm not going to put the story down very much hardly at all, but based on how little actually happens in this story, I'm not sure exactly what else could go on the cover. I think it like I said, there's not much else they could have done, but it's maybe not as riveting a cover, but I think it works well. I agree. Now, <clears throat> the first page is a sort of – this is a very – in case it wasn't clear, this is a sort of a Bronze Age sort of trope where it's sort of a second cover. This is Batman just sitting amongst the trees as he spies what looks like an old sort of Spanish galleon type of ship. And there's a lot of <clears> – <throat> there's a lot of narration uh, You know, why is Batman watching, you know, watching this ship. You know, it may look peaceful, but – the you know the, the danger is is all over the place here. You just wouldn't believe the shit that's about to go down. We're talking about cats and dogs living together, fucking mass hysteria, you know, and really hyping up the fact that you know uh, this place is dangerous and it's mysterious and something something death and stuff. Stay tuned, true believers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean they really. I mean somebody was channeling their inner Stan Lee here. So right. Um, but one of the things though that actually kind of works for me about this uh about this page. I don't know what you call this printing technique, but it almost looks like, you know, Batman and the tree branches and all that stuff. Those are drawn, and that's fine. But it almost looks like the sort of background with the sky and, and that that ship and everything. That almost looks like it's a sort of 1970s-style Photoshopped photo, almost. Right. And I, I don't know what you call that technique, but it, it looks a little too realistic to be drawn but it looks a little too drawn to be real, so I don't really know what that is. But it, you see it in, in 70s comics from time to time, um, and it's it's just really interesting to me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I have no idea what the terminology would be either, but it does look cool. Um, that, that's, that's where I am with art. If I can follow it and if it looks cool, then I'm good. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, the title of this story is called Half an Evil, and this is a story by Denny O'Neill with art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, edited by Julie Schwartz. Now, the reason I selected this story is, um, number one, I just wanted fundamentally to talk about two Bronze Age Batman stories here. Number two, I've actually got a little bit of a, uh, of a history with this story. With uh, The Demon of Gothis Mansion, I don't really think I read that until I was about, oof, probably like 24, 25 years old, something like that, and I'd been lusting over that cover since I was about nine. So it had been a long time before I, you know, uh, between the time I first saw the cover versus when I read the actual story. Not the case here. In fact, actually, if anything, this is sort of the total opposite. In as much as this story, Half an Evil, um, originally presented in uh, Batman number 234, 
this was actually reprinted in the greatest Batman stories ever told. So I read this about the same time that I saw the Demon of Gotha's Mansion cover, but I never saw the cover for this comic. This was reprinted, like I say, in the the greatest Batman stories ever told, and obviously the it was pr- it, those stories were published in chronological order according to when they were released, and so this was in the 1970s uh, section of uh, the uh, greatest Batman stories ever told, and. When you think about the greatest Batman stories ever told, a, a shitload of them could have been taken from the 1970s. And unfortunately, the powers that were at DC, they, they were kind of hamstrung in that they could only pick, you know, they, they, they were forced to pick just a couple of stories from the 70s when you could have made, and in fact, DC, I think, has made an entire volume of 70s Batman stories just by itself. So... The fact that, you know, with so much competition in the rest of, at, at the time, you know, what was the rest of Batman's publishing history, this was one of the stories that made the cut as one of the great stories that had ever been told. I mean, to me, that there was a pedigree that was associated with that. I wasn't sure, like as a kid, that I agreed with this being one of the great Batman stories ever told. I certainly don't agree, don't know if I agree with that as an adult. But I do think it's sort of emblematic of the era. Even if this story isn't the greatest thing since sliced bread, it does give you a very good flavor of what Batman stories at this time were like. And on that basis, actually, I, I, I think it works really well. So uh, It has it, some cool continuity importance because this is the first Two-Face story in 20 years. That actually was going to be one of the things that I mentioned, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, no, and I'm not saying that to criticize. Actually, that was going to be li- literally the next thing that I mentioned. So, no, you're on point there. So, um, and thank you, by the way, for for bringing that up. And that actually leads into the beginning of the story, where these clowns, of all things, they and uh, these thieves, just you know, dolled up like clowns, they invade a street parade, making its way through Gotham City, and of all things. <clears throat> They steal this uh, corporate uh, parade balloon in the shape of a hot dog. Of all things they could have possibly stolen, they steal this. And so obviously – At first I wasn't sure if they were like stealing other things and also making off with the balloon. Like maybe somehow in some 1970s comics magical way they'd stuff the goods in the balloon or something. I don't know. But but yeah, all they do is just steal this balloon. And there's one great panel of a clown holding a handgun up against one of the parade uh, costume girls who is dressed up like mustard because it's a hot dog balloon. And he, he just you know has the gun kind of quietly in her side saying, don't scream, don't move, I'll be gone in a minute. She's freaked out. And with a, with a fake smile plastered on her face, trying to act calm, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's a really great just little moment in in the in the robbery. Yes, it is. And one of the things actually that works for me specifically about that panel is is like you say, she's got that fake smile. And you know, I think one of the hardest things to draw if you're a comic book artist is like a, a Wolfman mask, you know, or basically anything artificial. You know, or like a movie poster or something like that, because just by virtue of the fact that you're already drawing something that's artificial to begin with, it's hard to draw the artificial within the artificial. And usually, whenever a um, somebody smiles, 
in a, in a, a comic book, even if it's coerced, it still has this this genuine genuine quality to it, right? Because there's only there's only so many ways you can draw a smile. Exactly that, and somehow Neil Adams, it's like he cracked the code. This smile, it looks forced. She looks uncomfortable. She looks like she wants to run for her life, but she knows that that's suicide. And you can see all of that on her face. She's smiling, but it's not the text that gives it away. She is forcing this smile. You would it would feel forced, you know. E- you know, even if um, you didn't have the context of the dialogue and even the gun to her side. If it was just her by herself in this panel, it would still look forced, like she's uncomfortable with whatever it is that's going on. Right. And that, to me, I, look, whatever you want to, people want to say about um, Neil Adams as a person, you know, and some of you know the kooky ideas that he's got. Whatever. Yeah. You can't take anything away from the man when it comes to art. That's for sure. And um, anyway, I just I feel like I've got to say that that pretty much takes us over to page two. And this, again, to me, is one of those things where it's this story is emblematic of an era where you've got so much of I mean, obviously, you know, two faces, you know, the the villain of the piece. But you've got this is sort of Batman sort of interacting with his own status quo. You know, you've got this parade that's going on in Gotham and somehow some supervillain lunatic finds a way to. Something at the parade that's worth stealing. And if you think about it, what the fuck are you going to find at a parade that's worth your time to steal? But and some, why Why in the hell would it be the hot dog balloon? Yeah, of all things, you know? And so there's that. You know, just these weird fucked up crimes that can only take place in Gotham City. And then you see, you know, when night falls, uh, the bat signal lights up the sky. Again, something you're only going to see in Gotham City. You know, Commissioner Gordon and um, who is this? This is uh, uh, he's like a councilman, Arthur Reeves. He's yeah, like I don't count- know if he was like a recurring minor character or what, but I love the scene. I do, too. Because how many times I think everybody has done this at one point or another. Somebody has peeved you off. And when they're not around, you're talking shit. And you're talking about how if they were there, you would just do this and this and this. Or you're looking at the news and, you know, someone on the other side of the of the divide is is, is saying something. You just, you just want to do that and that and that to them. And the person walks up behind you. you know. <laughs> Hello, how you doing? And that person is Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like the thing is, you know, what, what works for me is that, you know, Batman doesn't um, doesn't smack this guy around. He doesn't make any threats. He doesn't throw his balls around. He doesn't do anything. He just says, boo. And that's all that's needed. You know, this guy, like a little pussy, just turns around and runs off. And honestly, I mean, no, probably there's no one listening to this show. There's no one recording this show, for sure. But there's no one listening to this show who's got the balls to face off against Batman. I'm not saying I'd be any better, but then I'm, I'm not the guy that would shit talk somebody like Batman behind his back either. Now am I? And it's just, it's a funny moment. And it, when you think about it, it's an interesting moment of levity to start what is, I think, a pretty serious story when you come right down to it. So, and like you say, I mean, I'm not a big Arthur Reeves fan, uh, or uh, in, in as much as I don't really know a whole lot about the character. I, I do know, I, I think he pops up again later in, a, in the 80s. I mean, we're talking like the very tail end of 
the uh, pre-crisis Batman. I want to say like 1983, 84, 85 through there. And he actually, I think, does come back. And obviously, I just he, assumed he was one of those personalities that they had made for the era, who eventually did, who never really had any staying power. Like all the 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 dozen different people that Peter Parker went to grad school with in the late seventies, early eighties, none of whom still exist. Yeah. So I, I just figured it was one of those kinds of characters. And that may even have been his ultimate fate. I think the only reason that he's got any kind of lease on life, even now, is not even be, it's not because of this story as important as this story is, and it's certainly not because of that 1980s stuff, he was actually adapted into, um, as a sort of a rival for a Bruce Wayne in um, the animated film Mask of the Phantasm. He was sort of a, a, a competing suitor for Andrea Beaumont, and he never stood a chance. <laughs> oh, okay. I've only seen that once, and it was, you know... As far as Mask of the Fantasm goes, relatively recently, because um, as part of my 90s reading that I, I haven't really been that involved in lately, I've been trying to um, watch a lot of the animated stuff from that era. And I never saw Mask of the Phantasm when it came out. So I watched it about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I now I should watch it again because I know who that character is now. Huh, okay. Yeah, well, same guy. And uh, shit, we should probably do a show about a mask of the phantasm at some point, but it won't be part of this mega series. So, um, <laughs> I'll watch it again for that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm up for anything that gets me to watch that again. That's fine. That's fine by me. Now from there we get, this is a scene that we've, we've all kind of been through a thousand times where Gordon apprises Batman of a really fucked up crime that's just taken place and the fact is a scene like this cannot go on for page after page after page you pretty much have to get just a couple of panels and then something has to happen to disrupt the action and in this case what ends up happening is holy shit commissioner there's alarm going on at the going off at the nautical museum it's ringing we we need to get down there right now we need to find out what the fuck's going on you know and it's something has got to happen because you know it's like whenever you're watching a TV show and a scene takes place in a classroom, you mm-hmm. can kind of take it for granted that a school bell's about to ring and class is about to be over because you can't sit there for the entire fucking class period. It's just uh, unless, of course, you're watching a drama about how to do differential equations. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, I don't know. I'm. Uh, I have. It's not really my thing. Yeah, no, not my thing. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you guys like it, nobody's judging you here. But wow, that's weird. And you're weird for like well, nobody's <laughs> nobody's judging. We're you. not judging you. We're just judging you. <laughs> yeah. And so from there, uh, Batman makes his way to the gallery. And now I've said over and over again that, especially when I was a kid, what I wanted from a Batman movie was basically a nonstop fight scene. What I wanted was like you roll credits, the the beginning credits, and it's nothing literally from beginning to end. Uh, two hours of Batman just beating the shit out of people, right? That's what I want from a Batman movie, and especially when I was a kid. And to a degree, I, I think even now, I just want to see Batman getting all kinds of you know martial arts fights. He's he's beating up purse snatchers and he's kicking the shit out of bank robbers and rapists and kidnappers. And then he's moving on to martial arts experts. And then he's progressing up the food chain. He's now facing off against King Snake. And then he has to fight Lady Shiva. And then he's at some point he's got to take on Bane. He's got to take Bane out of action. You know, and the it's whole just, mess of lawyers. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, them too. Yeah, shitloads of lawyers, <laughs> plenty of them. You know, and uh, that's you know just Batman kicking the snot out of people. That's what I want to see. And my goodness gracious, we get a decent uh, a decent bit of that here, where this whole page is Batman. Just uh, he's punching people. He's knocking guns out of people's hands. He's um, he gave, in fact at the very at the very bottom of page five, he gives one of the clowns this. He gives him the devil's own kidney punch. Now, John, I'm not trying to get too too much into your personal life here or anything, but uh, have you ever been punched in the kidneys before? I have never been punched in the kidneys before, but I can only imagine. It hurts. I mean, like the fact that the guy's on the ground. Guys, I've been punched in the kidneys before. Laying on the ground is about the most you're able to do. If you ever find yourself in, in some kind of a conflict with somebody and it's a self-defense type of situation, punch the fucker in the kidneys. Trust me, he's not getting back up anytime soon. And um, that's ex- and it, first off, it's just the, the fluid motion of all of this, just the grace and the power of it. You know, Neil Adams could draw a fight scene like nobody's fucking business. And, and so because of that, you know, because the footwork looks pretty good, especially in the, the kidney punch moment, you can buy that, you know what, that guy is not getting back up anytime soon. What, Honestly, because of the fact that I've been punched in the kidney before, what I can't buy is the fact that he can talk. You know? <laughs> That's, you know, and like I say, it's a comic book, you roll with it. And who knows, maybe 10 minutes have gone by and he's, you're still not getting up, but you can at least, you've got a little bit of your lucidity back now. And yeah, I'm waiting patiently for him to recover. Yeah. And it's maybe like, oh, gave him some, maybe, maybe I hit him too hard. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, Batman's got all kinds of bullshit in his, in his utility belt. You mean to tell me he doesn't have some bat kidney punch recovery spray in his kidney? I mean, come on. <laughs> or some extra bat kidneys just to like put in the guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, come on. He's Batman. Shut the fuck up. So, um, and, uh, basically the thug he doesn't even know who he's working for, but he unknowingly gives Batman a clue that, in a very Adam West kind of way, is the final piece of the puzzle that Batman needs to unmask the uh, the villain's true identity, even though that's still a mystery as yet to the reader. Speaking of which, what? No, just I, I, I love this because I didn't get it. I did not get why this was the clue until they explained it later in the story because – because it's a written medium and the spelling threw me off. Yeah. That was actually going to be one of my uh, notes here. Basically, the villain is obviously Two-Face. He was on the cover. Yeah. So there's really no mystery to that. And the, the clue that uh, John and I are sort of talking around here is that the the thug was there to steal – the Diaries of Captain Bai, which is spelled B-Y-E, as in goodbye. And so in a text medium, that's a little bit – it's hard to understand, at least until it's explained. It's hard to understand why that would be the giveaway, whereas in uh, like an animated show or if it's a, a film or just whatever else, because of the fact that – it's a it's a play on words. You might actually interpret this as Captain Bi B I. The um, uh, he's uh, this LGBT uh, very overlooked Batman villain. In uh, his uh, his symbol is actually a rainbow flag. He's Captain Bi. And oh, hold on, wait, no, that's something else. Sorry. Yeah, different different guy. Sorry. Yeah, no, those are some different comics. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, and so the. Uh, 
The giveaway is that by bi obviously means two, two face, and so the, the sort of the chain of logic here it just seems very Adam West to me, where mm-hmm. Batman and Robin would get the most fucked up non sequitur clues, and they would somehow be able to, based on nothing, piece all of this stuff together, and there really is no chain of logic to it. It just needs you- to happen that way. And if you watch the 60s Batman movie, one of one of the worst, best examples of that. Could be any one of them, but which one? Wh- which ones? Pretty fishy what happened to me on that ladder. You mean, but there's a fish that could be a penguin. But wait, it happened at sea. See? See for Catwoman. Got an exploding shark was pulling my leg. The Joker. It all adds up to a sinister riddle. Riddler. Riddler? Oh, thought strikes me. So dreadful, I scarcely dare give it utterance. The four of Their forces combine. Holy nightmare, Batman. Could it be? I don't know. But I think... I know where to find a clue. Come on, Robin. To the Batcave. We haven't one moment to lose. Where they, they're figuring out that all the villains are involved because it happened at sea. Sea <gasps> for Catwoman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what the fuck, you know? So, um, yeah, that's... It's... It, 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 and it almost feels like a little bit out of place to put that here. I don't know. It just it, it's it's weird. I roll with it, but like John says, it, it's one of those things that when you think about it, doesn't really work too well. I don't know. So that was pretty much it, really. I mean, I said my piece on that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm beating this thing to death, but uh, no, it's just one of those things that I think actually that it took advantage of the fact that it was a written medium that you that we don't follow his logic. And so when he does have the explanation scene with um, with Alfred, I would expect Alfred to say, yes, I understand. Bye. I speak fucking English. So I'm from England where English came from. I would expect Alfred to say that. But um, as the readers actually helps us to see, oh, that's what he did there. Okay, I got you now. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And, you know, from there, we we cover to, you know, we cover we cut to uh, this abandoned warehouse in the abandoned warehouse district of Gotham City, near the docks, of course. And uh, we see... I think it's on abandoned warehouse lane. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it does kind of make you wonder, you know, how fucking many abandoned warehouses are there in that city? I mean, you know, my, my personal opinion has always been that if the mayor of Gotham City was... If he was to ever decide to take the initiative and bulldoze all of those abandoned warehouses. I shudder to think how many criminal organizations would have to fold in Gotham city overnight. You know, I mean <laughs> that by itself, you're eliminating, it's gotta be like 70% of the crime in Gotham city just, just by showing up. And now they're just homeless. Yeah. And admittedly at that point, you're introducing a different social problem, but that's not really a problem for Batman to handle. You know, right. it's more for social services and stuff. And I guess, you know, Bruce. Or Golden Age Superman. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, he could just, you know, build them, you know, have the government build them some houses or something. I don't know. So, but either way, that's not 
uh, I, I guess that solution still remains uh, elusive in uh, Gotham City. So uh, the villain, who we know to be Two-Face, but he's still shrouded in uh, shadow, um, he's basically talking back and forth with one of his lackeys, and he his decision as to what he's going to do next is dictated by the toss of a coin. And I got to tell you, you know, in today's world, that would not be very much of a reveal. But in 1971, when this story came, uh, came out, like John said, this was the first um, Two-Face story there had been in, like, how many years? 1953 had been the previous story, and this is 1971, so almost 20 years. Shit. Okay, wow. So, I, so uh, basically, you could fairly well say that Denny O'Neill was scraping the barrel, so to speak, for um, uh, Batman villains. And I kind of got to think, you know, I mean, I that's actually context that had sort of been lost on me. But if you think about it, but for this story, Two-Face may have actually ended up being a sort of also ran weird, kooky, late golden age uh, or mid golden age, I, sh- I, I should say. Now, late. Yeah. 1953 is, is pretty late in the golden age. Because 56 is when Superman uh, Flash was born. Right, and that actually leads into something. I mean, I always thought that, you know, different characters enter different ages at different times. Oh, yeah, they do. Because the, the ages are more like trends in storytelling and aspects of stories. And so that affects different characters in different ways. Yeah. And so on that, based on the fact that, like the way I always viewed it, Batman really didn't have a whole lot to do with the Silver Age when you really think about it. I mean, by my count, different people have different standards, but by my count... Batman didn't enter the Silver Age until he got the yellow oval on his chest. And when you think about how long that period didn't last before he entered the Bronze Age, he didn't spend a whole lot of – assuming I'm right, he didn't really spend a whole lot of time in the Silver Age. And so that's why I sort of labeled the last two – the most recent Two-Face story prior to this one as being sort of the I middle. I see. So, okay, yeah. And I, anyway, that's that's my standard. doesn't have to be yours. So – or anybody else's for that matter. But that's why I said that, just so I don't look like an idiot. So – Anyway, but it just it's strange to think that he might have been just a, a sort of uh, an also ran in a Batman's no matter when it is his golden age history. Denny O'Neill sort of plucked him out of obscurity and I think set him on the path to becoming one of Batman's A-list uh, villains. When you think about it, he's a marquee name now. I love Two-Face. Um, I, I, I knew who he was before I read the story I'm about to mention, but when when he really, really resonated with me was the, I want to say 1989 annual, Batman Annual 14. Oh, yes. That one's so good. Yes, yes, yes. And, and that's... That resonated with me for all signs of all kinds of personal reasons I won't get into right now, but it was so amazing to read. And... um. I've always been drawn to the character ever since then. And that's whenever like Batman forever came out and two Face is going to be in that. I was so excited. Although I think the only really good two face scene in that movie is the very first one. But, um, but that's, that's, that's a conversation for another time. The, uh, the idea of the character that was Sony and I, I was kind of taken aback because the colorist in this issue paints two face with flesh tones all across his face yes. rather than making his burned area sort of green or purple or whatever. Yes. 
And I really like it. I really dug the idea of him just having burned, distorted flesh without making it sort of weird and, I don't know, unnatural looking. Um, So since this was his first revival after, like I said, nearly 20 years, I'm just kind of surprised that this portrayal didn't stick, you know, because usually whenever you bring somebody back and and you make your stamp on that character, a lot of times that's the way that character is for a good long time. Um, So I'm surprised that they went back to the um, comic booky, for lack of a better word, coloring of Two-Face's skin. Yeah, and I've always sort of wondered about that myself. I mean, like I said, this was this was not only my first introduction to Two-Face. This was my only introduction to Two-Face for a long time. This was the only Two-Face story I really had access to until that Batman annual that you mentioned came out. And he has this – and again, I'm not trying to make fun or anything like that, but he does have that – half green face and i always thought you know look if his face was if it had been you know sort of flesh colored and sort of melted like this i can buy that or if it had been sort of discolored and it was gray right a, a little bit strange but I, I i can buy that or if it had been purple and i think it's been purple a few times i could i could sort of buy that too there is something that Maybe it somehow got mutated or something. This is acid. Maybe it was, I don't know, something fucking something happened. I don't know. It's fucking purple. I can ride with that. You know, because it is possible for human flesh, not to, maybe not to be that purple, but for it to be purple. It could happen. Right, right. But for it to be just fucking green, there is nothing in your body that, that's going to turn, except for like gangrene, I guess. It, there's, and even that's going to be a very temporary condition, I can assure you. There's nothing generally that's going to be that's going to turn your flesh green and then have it stay that way permanently, you know. So, I didn't complete. It just looked inhuman, I, and not in a good way. I just didn't understand it, and it. I hate to say it, but it's one of those things that sort of kept me from connecting to Two Face as much as I might have otherwise. I just felt like the the presentation of Two Face aesthetically that we get here. It just feels so much more convincing, you know? And um, especially whenever we finally do get the reveal of him, and it's right there, the first panel on page seven, where, number one, you know, the, the, the right side of his face, like his right side, it looks fairly normal, I suppose. But then you get over to his left side, and it not only looks scarred and melted and deformed, he actually looks not just dangerous. And I don't mean that in the sort of like that. There's a psychological term for it. It's called the uncanny Valley where when something human looks less human, it just on a psychological level, it's instinct. You will get more and more weirded out by it. Not even just that. He actually does look just truly fucking just dangerous and crazy, you know? And to me, that is, that is two face right there. And I, as you say, I do wish that this had sort of become the norm for Two-Face. The only reason I can think of that it might not have stuck around is that with that green coloring or the purple coloring or whatever else, you do get that perfect line of demarcation that obviously they uh, uh, Neil Adams didn't want to – he didn't want to go for here. He wanted the change not to be you know, a perfect – sort of, I guess, non-symmetry symmetry. 
he wanted it to be a sort of more of a uh, of a gradual scarring where one side of his like the like the far right side the far extreme the far right extreme of his face looks totally normal and the further you go to to the left of his face it gets worse and worse and worse until finally by the point where you get to his left ear it's just it doesn't even look human anymore and apart from being just amazing art it actually does sort of tie in with Two-Face's injuries, that is just about the way he'd look considering what he went through. Right. And so, anyway, I'm not trying to beat this thing to death. It's just, this is incredibly well done. No, no, it is. And, and the one other thing I thought of while you were talking that may be a reason why they do the unnatural coloring is in the scene coming up where they're on the boat and Two-Face first shows up in the um, sailor's garb, I didn't twig to the fact immediately that that was Two-Face. It just looked like a dude. Mm-hmm. And ah. so and so maybe they used the coloring to sort of set him apart. Because in images, I mean, in that panel where you're looking at him and he's in the light, it just looks horrendous and amazing. But in scenes, and you're going to have them in, in, in comics where things are just a little bit more um, expressive. Yeah, or, or or even the opposite of that. If, if you uh, are zoomed out from a character, and you don't necessarily realize that that's Two-Face because he just looks like a guy. Hmm. Yeah, no, I could see that. No, that makes but, sense. Um, but anyways, uh, who knows why they decided to go with it. I think overall, ultimately, I would prefer him looking like he was burned rather than looking like he was painted. I agree. Now... I guess maybe you could no prize this by saying, and honestly, this just occurred to me. This is just weak sauce, so just take it as you will. That maybe he tattooed that side of his face green, specifically to make it uh, to set it more apart. But I don't know. That's bullshit. That doesn't take you very far. But that's literally the best you could come <laughs> up with. But anyway, from there uh, we cut back to um, the Wayne penthouse, because we are definitely in that era of uh, Batman's uh, publishing history here. And we didn't really get a chance to spend a whole lot of time at the penthouse in uh, the last issue. Um, But here you've got Bruce Wayne. He's chilling out with Alfred. And because of the fact, like John says, that this is the first story, the first Two-Face story in damn near 20 years, you've really got to get Two-Face's backstory. Now, it's very common in comics to get the the villain's origin in flashback anyway, even if it's been only like two or three months since you last saw him, you never know which issue is going to be somebody's first. And so they all have to be written as though they're, they're the first. In this case, you could, I think it would be fair to argue that most people buying this comic new off the rack had no idea who two face was. And so it's incredibly important that they understand who two face is and what he's all about. That having been said, though, this is where Batman's uh, pre-crisis continuity, and I would say uh, to some degree even his post-crisis continuity and just how murky it was, this is where you start getting into a little bit of interpretive uh, difficulties. Two-Face's story, not just his origin, but his story, it actually gets – this is it's actually very straightforward in a pre-crisis type of context. But the minute you move this shit into the post-crisis era, you start getting into problems where, yeah, Two-Face, he was scarred. He was, you know, the district attorney. He he was he was trying some, at the time, nameless uh, mob boss. Now the mob boss would get a name in subsequent decades, but 
at the time, I think it was just a nameless mob boss. And, you know, he becomes one of Batman and Robin's great enemies. But then there comes a point where his uh, he undergoes plastic surgery and his face is repaired, which brings him back from the brink. You know, it basically restores him to normalcy. And because of the fact that it's a story and you've got to have, you know, Two-Face back in action, he gets he, – they find a way for him to get scarred again, basically to bring Two-Face back permanently this time. And that is a very, I think, foreign – as far as I know, it's a foreign element to uh, uh, the post-crisis Two-Face. He never underwent this. I mean pretty much once he was scarred, that's it, end of story. But it is a very powerful moment that this guy was this close to to having a normal life, and it was taken away through no fault of his own. And once again, he was just trying to do the right thing. You know, he more more than I think a lot of Batman villains, Two Face really is a victim of circumstance. And now he's a victim of perhaps appropriately, he's a victim of circum, uh, circumstance twice. So that's kind of interesting. It also um, sort of makes a difference between the Golden Age Two-Face and the Silver and Bronze Age Two-Face because the Golden Age Two-Face or the, the what you might call the Earth-2 two Two-Face, he had his um, scars repaired through plastic surgery and that was his last story. Hmm. And then you get the 1953 story, um, which is being referred to here – with the explosion where his um, scars are, you know, recreated again. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the difference between the two, the, the, the two face of the, the forties had like three or four appearances, gets plastic surgery and he's done. And then 1953, they revived two face and have him get his scars back. And that's the earth one, two face that they're referring to here. And so it's all different. And, and the difference between this two face and, and Batman annual 14 two face, the post crisis annual is that he recreates his scars because he's crazy and he tears his face off. Yes. And that's sadistic and gross, not sadistic, masochistic, masochistic, masochistic and gross. gross. Well, whatever. Um, I, we all knew what you meant. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just some differences in the, in the, in the idea of the character. And you can do that with myth. You can have, you can have twists on the story for different eras. Yeah, and um, honestly, I think in the end, it all it all it all works out pretty well. It's just it's one of those just sort of weird aspects of of uh, you know. There's a little bit of discontinuity here, where you know he has plastic surgery, and then you know as a victim of circumstance, it ends up sort of getting undone. Right. Whereas in the post-crisis era, he undid it himself because he was he just had issues and problems and whatnot to begin with. That and, panel though on the bottom of page eight. <clears throat> where he says two face forever. I kind of want him to go into like a, um, uh, a hairband slow rock montage of him, like alternating between committing crimes and then having self loathing in the, in the room by himself with maybe a drink or something in his hand. Whereas like his two face forever. He can't do anything else. And it's just like all sad that, that he's, he's stuck his two face. Now <laughs> I want that to happen. Well, you know, maybe, uh, 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 this could be some – I don't even know what you call it, like live-action fan fiction where you uh, doll yourself up just like Two-Face and you make some YouTube videos. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking something Highlander-esque here, you know, where it's just like uh, – yeah, I don't know. But um, 
I love the Batmobile in this. I showed it to Lily because I was reading this comic next to her. I showed it to her and I was like, it's just like a regular 70s car with a little bat on front. And she's like, I love that bat. I could draw a bat like that, which means it's not really that much of a bat because it's not hard to do. But um, but yeah, he's just he's just driving a car. Yeah, let's talk about that. I, you know, I'm I'm glad that's that's the, the perfect segue. I'm not going to get anything better than that. Um, I, God, I wish I could give this uh, give this person credit, just whoever it was. But uh, somebody out there has a, a a website dedicated to not just the Batmobile, but all the different Batmobiles that Batman's had over the years. And this what we're dealing with here is basically the sort of late '60s, early '70s Corvette Stingray, where um, I think a lot of people are very well uh, familiar with uh, the late 70s Stingray that had all of those you know, swooping lines and stuff. And that definitely looks very bat-like to me. But this, I also kind of like in that it's, it's a recognizable 70s street car that you can kind of figure Batman's probably done some work to because, hey, Batman. But it's still got the function. I guess it, you, you can see the where that originally started out, like just the, the functionality of it that, you know, Batman started from a base. He didn't just build a car from the ground up. He took a uh, mass produced car and then built a Batmobile out of it. And, you know, the uh, perception a lot of people have of this era of Batman is that it's a lot more grounded and dare we say realistic um, than, you know, a lot of what had come before. And that's one of those just sort of subconscious I don't know, aspects of this era of Batman where, yeah, it, it, it just sort of helps reinforce that, you know, this is a, it's not necessarily the real world, but it's a more real world than, you know, uh, uh, than what we dealt with before of Batman driving around in this unreleased Lincoln concept car. Now this is a mass produced car. It's probably recognized by all and sundry as a Corvette, but it's still got, bat motifs to it and it's it's had a lot of customization done so i'm not trying to overanalyze it but at the same time i don't want to underplay it either well this is from the era where driving a badass car and like the make and model and year of your car identified the level of badassery so if you could have an identifiable model of vehicle that then had some bat motifs added to it i think that might appeal to this era of reader more than say just you know a really cool looking car that that you know is done up like a bat which they had done in like the 40s after he well he first starts out into like a regular sedan but eventually he gets like you know the fin going up the back and everything else um and then nowadays where the batmobile is just you know a tank basically well yeah in the movies it's a tank but in the comics it's just it's just a completely made up fictitious sweet looking sleek ride mm-hmm. that you know doesn't really have any parallels in reality i think this kind of real car that would be cool to drive with a bat on it is 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 a, a very much of its era i agree and one of the things that that speaking of which and to bring it back into the story at the same time that one of the things that actually i think kind of works for this is that like you say, this is a real car. And if you shoot a real car with shotguns and Tommy guns and stuff, do you know what's going to happen? You're going to destroy that car. And that's exactly what we see happen right there on on uh, page 10. 
I don't know if this is the actual Batmobile that Batman sends because he kind of he refers to it as the automatic pilot type controls in that model Batmobile. So I don't know if this is his actual Batmobile or if this is something else he just happened to have handy. I don't know what the deal is with that, but either way, it, it's not armored. It doesn't have special protection. If you shoot this thing, it's going to have bullet holes in it. Mm-hmm. And Batman actually uses that to his advantage. He sends, whether this is the real thing or if it's just a remote control version, he sends that to draw the uh, bad guy's fire while he, uh, he he jumps him, takes him out. And one of them, he actually sort of takes out in a weird sort of way. He crawls under the car and like takes the dude's feet out from under him, and then the guy crashes his head against a post. It and, happens. Yeah, and yeah, I, I do too, especially when I'm shooting at a Batmobile and then some lunatic. Anyway, so um, actually, I probably shouldn't talk too much about that. That's still pending litigation there. But uh, yeah, yeah, we we'll, we keep the keep the lawsuit off the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's for the best. But um, anyway, it's it's just it's and as the Batmobile sort of you know cruising or cruising by, you can actually see that it's it's now like the windows are all shot up and. You know the the fenders all busted up. It it just it's just got that air of believability to it. And now me, I'm not the kind of guy that needs believability in a Batman story, but I don't look down my nose at it either. So to me, either way, it it, it works, and I I like it. So did he drive the car off the pier? That's the thing. We don't really see what happens to the Batmobile after like that. Uh, the the last panel on page ten. I don't think we see the Batmobile again in this story. I mean, that's basically yeah, it's basically it. it's not the Batmobile that's exploding off in the ocean because he's he's surprised that there's an explosion going on. Yes. Um, and actually, the transition between pages ten and eleven is is kind of leaves a panel or two up for your imagination to figure out what just happened. But um, but yeah, as far as the whole that model line, I just envision that. Either he has multiple models or over his course of his history, he's had different models of Batmobile. So that particular model of Batmobile is doing really great. Um, it's just one of the different Batmobiles he's had in his life. But but yeah, it does get pretty torn up. And I'd, I'd actually – I am going to be reading through this era of Batmobile – of Batmobile – this era of Batman. So I'd be curious to know if this is the end of this Batmobile or if there's a different one next issue or if this is the same one again just fixed or what. Um, I think we see this at least a few more times. I swear to think that in the Joker's five-way revenge, which hasn't – which I don't think had been published yet, I, th- um, I think he drives the same Batmobile. So – Okay. Um, could be wrong, but uh, now that one's drawn by Jim Apero, so even though it looks kind of similar, I mean, who's to say? So it's uh, I don't oh, actually who no who no was it the Five Way Revenge that was drawn by Jim Apero? Who drew Five Way Revenge? I don't know. Okay, I've only read it once. It's been a long time. Okay, fine. So fine, be that way. See if I can. <laughs> I mean, I can go to the internet and find out. But... Well, you know, I mean, I'm you know, I, I wouldn't want to want to imp, uh, impose upon you or anything. I just. Just thought I'd ask about that, but um, you know, I, actually, I just now looked it up. Boy, was I wrong. It's uh, Neil Adams. So, oh, yeah. Well, there you okay, go. well, there you, there you, there you have it. So, uh, yeah. All right. So to to move away from this awkward moment, uh, Batman looks off into the pier and he sees um, this uh, ship go kerblooey, and so Batman is sort of taken off. He's, he's sort of caught off guard by that what the fuck is going on? I mean, this was supposed to be the prize, so why would Two-Face destroy it, et cetera, et cetera? And so we get, I love it when comic books do this, 
it says that, um, you know, it challenges the reader now. Can you figure this out? It says the facts are in and there is a solution. Have you deduced Two-Face's intention? I like that that's coupled with some real frustration on the part of Batman. I mean, because I've read lots of Superboy and Superman comics from the from the Silver Age that throw this sort of thing in. In the middle of a story, Wonder Woman does it almost every issue in the, around 1960, where they just ask you, can you guess what's going to happen next, or can you guess this or that? But to couple it with actual Batman feels like he's on the right track, and then suddenly everything goes to shit. And he's like, what the hell? It doesn't make sense. Why would Two-Face go to all that trouble, stage the theft of a ship, sink his prize? Um, and I think it it just makes a really neat beat for what would be a classic storytelling trope. I think he's just put a new flavor on. I agree. And, you know, I don't know why, but for some reason, this honestly just occurred to me, for some reason, this entire story just feels Batman. It, it feels very Batman, the animated series to me. And, uh, you know, this moment, especially, I don't know why. I mean, this was... To my recollection, there's there there was no scene like this in any episode of Batman the Animated Series, but I could still kind of see it. You know, something like this could have been in an episode of Batman the Animated Series, and you know, this moment where Batman, you know, he he finds his destination, he thinks he's about to get his man, and then he gets thrown off the trail like this. It just it just feels very animated series to me, and. I'm I'm a fan of the animated series, so you know, believe me, that's high praise. Yeah, yeah, you know, it 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 works, and and the thing is that that show works so well by grounding Batman's emotional reactions to things, um, and that's what we're getting here. We're getting a grounded emotional reaction to to what's going on here. So yeah, I can definitely see that happening. Yeah, and then from there, um, you know, that was page eleven. We switch over to page twelve, and Batman's pretty well clearly worked this out. But before we even get into that. There's some – I'm guessing he's basically just a uh, sort of a homeless little sort of bum. I love these moments in comics where you just have a random guy and you get like extra narration about this random guy. He doesn't have any real important part to the story, but the story is interfering with random guy's life. Mm-hmm. And so so here he is. Yeah, and it does it, – I, look, I don't want this to sound all whatever, but – what I what I really like in in comics is when we get stories that affect the people. You know, I mean, it's one thing when it affects the characters. You know, I mean, Batman, he's gonna have a, a very specific emotional reaction whenever he finds out that Rachel Ghoul has has kidnapped Robin in an attempt to recruit Batman to be the new league, uh, the new leader of the League of Shadow. I mean, the League of Assassins. He's gonna, and, and it's not hard for him to be affected by that. You can see that. But at the end of the day, these stories don't take place in a vacuum. And these goings on, it should affect the people of Gotham more than just being, you know, having a gun stuck in their side while somebody steals their parade balloon. It should affect them. And that's exactly what happens here. The, you know, this guy, he's just um, curled up on his little inner tube. He's got a bottle of Jack Daniels underneath his arm, taking a nap. And, out of fucking nowhere, he gets drawn into a conflict between Two-Face and Batman. And he didn't ask for this. He had nothing nothing to do with it, really. But it nevertheless affects him. And I don't know why, but I just I like it when 
stories bring in it affects more than just our lead characters that it affects these incidental sort of faceless nameless characters and you know it fucks their day up too whether they know it or not and i don't think this guy even has so much as i don't even think he fucking wakes up i think he sleeps through this whole thing but nevertheless it just it I don't know why. I'm not trying to be a pain in the ass about it. It's just it, it works for me. No, it, it's cool. It, it's something that, that Claremont would do a lot. I, know I brought him up more than once already in the in the show, but, but I'm reading X-Men right now, so it's in my head. Ah. Um, Claremont would put maybe an unnecessary amount of detail in occasional background characters that makes it feel like that character could go off and have his own little miniseries about completely mundane stuff, but it feels like it'd be totally interesting because you know something about him now. Yeah. You know, so Billy the thing- Tramp is just a dude, but he's Billy the Tramp now. You know, I want to I see Billy the Tramp go and, you know, buy liquor <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. And this is, I got to tell you, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. When I was um, reading this, I mean, I would read, reread, reread, and then reread again um, the greatest Batman stories ever told. And so, when you're number one, you're a kid, and number two, you're just starting out in comics as a collector, and number three, you're getting just sort of these hints and snatches of of not just comic stories, now continuity. You know, you. Well, you're getting snatches as a kid. That's yeah. awesome. Oh yeah, awesome. Yes, and the what what I ended up kind of misinterpreting from all of this was that Billy the Tramp was an actual character. You know, he wasn't just an incidental nobody that this story needed in order to to kind of give another part of the narrative some somewhere to go. Basically, mm-hmm. I thought he was like a real character. This is, you know, basically this sort of he he was sort of like the doorman at um, Clark Kent's apartment. He he's not really a character, but he is sort of a fixture. He pops up now and then, right? And that's who I thought Billy the Tramp was. And I thought, well, that's kind of i'd actually like to see where else billy the tramp pops up you know somehow it's this it's this this guy's karma that he keeps ending up on uh these supervillains radar through no fault of his own and i thought you know that's actually kind of interesting you know and of course and no that's not what happens he's like this is his first and last appearance so far as i know yeah but as a kid you're just starting out especially with batman comics and you're getting this sort of hodgepodge mix of continuity where you don't know what's going on you you won't necessarily know that. And so I kind of regarded him as being the Batman equivalent, like I say, of Clark Kent's doorman. And that's not who he is. So anyway, so but to your point, yeah, that's how you, we only get like just a little bit, uh, a little bit about Billy. But, you know, it's more than enough to, uh, you know, get us invested in him, I think. So anywho, um, sort of the next step in all of this, we get a recreation of page one, Batman lurking in this. It's not completely clear now where exactly this tree is located because what we're left to think is that this is a little bit more – this is a little further out in the bay where you would think there wouldn't be any trees because there's fucking just water. But somehow Batman's found a tree. He's sort of lurking there. We don't even know how the fuck he got there. And right as the ship somehow begins rising out of the water – and the only reason this works for me is because you get those four very powerful words. If you put put those four words into any comic book, you can convince a lot of people of a lot of bullshit. Nearby, the Batman lurks. I don't know why, but those four 
those four words, it's right up there for some reason. Those four words are right up there with look up in the sky. You know, I don't know why, but somehow you sell the reality of this character. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily selling this character in reality, but you sell this character's reality with just a few words. Nearby, the Batman lurks. Somehow there's a tree. Somehow Batman found it. And somehow he got there without getting a drop of water on him. I don't know how. But hey, fucking he's Batman. So there you go. He's Batman, yeah. And so swings on board uh, the ship. And this is that moment we get into on page 13 that you were talking about where Two-Face crawls on board the ship. And at first, he t- I totally see your point where you, I guess print technology isn't going to really allow too much detail from that kind of distance. You know, it's sort of a, if you want to put it in cinematic terms, it's kind of a wide shot. Mm-hmm. So it is a little harder to see, you know, who this guy is and all that stuff. I can, uh, until you get to that, uh, it looks like the fourth panel there where Two-Face lights a cigar there's something you're not you're not going to see in comics anymore, but uh, Two Face lights a cigar and you can see the scarring and the melting on his face. And now, okay, yeah, this is this is definitely Two Face. But I could see where, yeah, that would have thrown you before. And I like how I mean, as much as I liked in the other story how Batman took out a bunch of guys without even hardly trying, I also like how he just gets dropped by, I mean, what essentially is normal dude. Normal guy walks up behind Batman and clocks him. And that while that happened all the blessed time in the 40s, we have a very different style of storytelling now. And um, we have now is in the, in the 70s comic. And we have an even a more different style of storytelling and expectations of Batman here in 2015, where this just doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So to see um, the 70s, which is a very intermediate era between the 40s and the modern mm-hmm. you know um it's refreshing to see batman get clocked by a guy and as expected as soon as he comes to he's already figuring out what to do to to escape i.e tensing up and bulking up his muscles when he's getting tied up so that he can get free yes and truth to tell i mean like on your wrist i don't know how well that would actually work i mean if they're tying your forearm Maybe, but not so much your wrist, but whatever, Batman. No, no, yeah, Batman. <laughs> so, um, and then from there, you know, we get this really important scene where Two-Face has to sort of monologue a little bit and exposit basically what's just happened and how this is all possible. And basically, the purpose of stealing the parade balloon was to use that as a sort of inflatable thing to to sort of raise the Titanic, so to speak, and bring the ship back to the surface. And that's where I kind of got to get off the bus that Denny O'Neill's driving here. Yeah. It's a comic book, and so I almost want to say that you're not supposed to think about it too much. But the damage that was done to that ship isn't going to be easily remedied by simply putting an inflatable balloon in there and then um, well, inflating it, all right? You're not going to be able to bring the the ship back to the surface. I mean... uh, the very most that I could see that would happen is that really that inflatable balloon would just shatter what was left of, uh, of the ship. And now, now you're really fucked. Right. But the other thing that I guess, apart from that, like the logistical impossibility of doing it, there's the, like, why, why would you need to, I mean, two face manifestly has scuba gear. So why wouldn't he just sink the ship and use his scuba gear, go down there, steal the, um, 
steal, steal the gold doubloons. Because you don't need to have the ship, you know, uh, on the water in order to do this. You can do that just as easily with a ship as sunk. Maybe even more easily, in fact. And all of this can be done without getting back on Batman's radar. It's just, I don't really get it. And, you know, I get, I mean, I do get the fact that, yes, you know, you have to put the villain in a position where the hero can arrest him. Otherwise, what are we doing here, you know? Yeah, it's, it is weird. I hadn't thought about the fact that the, uh, the floating device would basically explode the ship because that's basically what it would do. It's, it's a, it's an internal force that's getting bigger than the external external skeletal structure can 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 withstand so it's going to explode it um i was just kind of like wow that was that was a real rube goldberg way to steal some gold i agree um and you know what's a comic without some real rube goldberg ways to pull off pull off some heists but uh but still it's (laughs) it's a bit much yeah it is it does stretch credibility but damn it this is the first Two-Face story there's been in almost 20 years. And honestly, this story gets so much right with Two-Face's character. You don't want to know the amount of bullshit that I'm willing to overlook when it comes to the characters being in character. The plot, it does what it needs to do. And so the characters are in character. They're reacting the way they need to react. And that, to me, is is really what counts the most. So... And I think like a really good example of what I'm talking about is that Two Face would want to, you know, leave Billy the Tramp to his fate because, you know, the boat is going to sink again. It's going to take Batman with it. He's going to drown and whatever. I mean, Batman is Two Face's avowed enemy, so you know he's fair game. Billy is—he really is a, an innocent bystander in all this. And you know, Two Face can say whatever he wants about chance and randomness and. And, you know, the arbitrary, non-existent nature of justice in a, in a supposedly ordered universe, he doesn't completely buy into that. On, on some level, he's got to – there's got to be some sort of method to the madness. Even if it's a 50-50 coin toss, there's still got right. to be some sort of method. He can't – on a psychological level, he can't just leave uh, Billy to his devices. And so Batman is actually incredibly smart to pick up on that. You know? And it's not like Billy was part of the plan. If Billy had been part of the plan from the beginning, then then fine. Billy's Billy's a sacrifice that must be made for this to work. But he picked up Billy by mistake. So now he's gotta he's gotta fix that. I agree. And the other thing that actually sort of works for me in all of this is that Two Face, while he's trying to convince himself that he can just abandon Billy, you see him uh, you know, maneuvering the paddle boat away from uh, away from the sinking ship, and he's just, and the, you you can just imagine, you know, he he just says, ah, "Fuck," takes up. He's like wrestling with his own psychology on that. <laughs> yeah, and then of course he comes up short, and then you move on to to um, uh, page fifteen, the sort of climax of the story, where you just you, you can see that Two Face is now steering uh, the paddle boat back to the ship. And he's not actually saying motherfucker, cocksucker, fuck, 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 motherfucker. But you can, <laughs> because this is a code-approved book. But you know that's what he's saying. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. So he climbs up the rigging, gets Billy, and then he has to meet Batman, who's escaped his little death trap. And that's when we get into, 
I guess like the fullness of all of this. Batman didn't sucker Two Face so that uh, he could save his own life, meaning Batman's life. Batman sucker Two Face so that uh, you know he would basically put himself into a position where Batman could arrest him. And again, it's just so clever. This saved Batman the trouble of having to track him down later on. He basically takes Two Face out with one punch, which again is a very Batman move to make. Saves both Billy and Two Face, and then that's basically you know the end of the story, perhaps. And again, it's the characters being in character. So you know the Rube Goldberg aspect of of you know this theft. It's okay because of the fact that you know these characters are doing what they should be doing, and even if the mechanics of the plot don't always line up with, let's face it, Occam's razor of you know the simplest uh, approach to things you still buy it. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I get you. Yeah, so. um, my only qualm with the ending was that I just felt it was really sudden. Like, all of a sudden, bam, we're done. Um, I, I Since we had finally gotten to Two-Face, and this is really just kind of an aspect of DC's stories at the time, because even though it's 1970, DC is still mainly doing multi-story comics issues, which means this is a 15-page story in a, in, a, in a 20 or 30-page comic, and there are more stories to come after, even though we're skipping over them. Um, so we finally get to Two-Face, and the Batman-Two-Face conflict seems to just end before it's even started. And he clunks Two-Face out and carries him off, and, and it's over. There's no real any falling action. Yeah, and I was going to mention that as well. This is a 22-page story that somehow got crammed into a 15-page story. Right. And I – That's what it feels like. Yeah, I truly don't know what the original intention of this thing might have been. What I think might have happened is it's quite possible that O'Neill devised a story – that was supposed to be 22 pages, because it may not seem like much, 15 pages versus 22 pages. That's a lot. That's a lot. Well, that's half again your length. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of room. Yeah, and so, you know, it may seem, yeah. And so, you know, the basically the way that it sort of worked in my mind was that, um, you know, uh, he was sort of caught between sort of a, a, a rock and a hard place where he... Really, through through no fault of his own. I mean, you know, uh, O'Neill. Basically, when you think about it, fifteen. I just did the. I just did some quick math here. Fifteen pages out of twenty-two pages. That's sixty-eight percent. So that leaves damn near thirty percent, or actually over thirty percent, of your story that you're kind of having to truncate here. I could see that, you know, posing a little bit of a, a problem with your pacing. I'm. That's not a. It's not a stretch. And so, like I say, I mean, the characters, they're in character, and so I roll with it. You know, yeah, the, there's a little bit of a Rube Goldberg aspect to, you know, to all of this, but, you know, fuck it, Batman. And, <laughs> you know, the story, it just kind of ends with really one punch when I think a lot of us were expecting a little bit more of a pitched battle, but hey, fuck it, Batman. But it's just the weaknesses, when you start tallying them all together, it does it does start to add up after a while. And there's a limit to how much you can say, well, fuck it, Batman, you know, before you start thinking, well, this is starting to become a little bit, it's not a major thing, but it is still a little bit of an issue. 
Yeah, it, it's a good story. Should it have been in the set greatest stories ever told? Um, well, it's kind of something that I, we've been discovering um, over at the unofficial Marvel 75 greatest countdown podcast. There's so many words in that title. I always forget exactly what it is. A lot of the books on that 75 greatest Marvel stories list are there because of their importance rather than their quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and while this is definitely a good story, I think it's probably Batman's greatest stories ever told because it revives Two-Face for a new generation. Well, I it's there for its importance more than it's more than for what it does as a story itself. Yeah. And I think the other thing was the um, one of the other motivators was whoever it was that compiled that, they wanted to have as much from the mainstream Batman books at the time, which is to say Batman and Detective Comics. And and they wanted to stay away from sort of the um, I guess the tie-in titles like DC Presents and, and Brave so, and the Bold, yeah, Brave and the Bold and things like that. And so um, what they wanted was basically to stay as close as possible to the core titles, and at the same time they also wanted to showcase important creative teams. And on that basis, there's not a there's, I mean, there, there's some stuff from Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams in uh, the core Batman uh, titles in Detective Comics. There's not as much as people seem to want to remember. You know, there's not as much to choose from there as you might think. And so, but that is a major consideration. And then, as you say, the fact that this reintroduced Two-Face into continuity, that's another consideration. I think those two things are ultimately what uh, resulted in this, in this uh, issue being included in... Um, in that volume, whereas if it was being published today, considering the vast wealth of of uh, Batman stories that have been published since 1989 that are truly memorable, I think it might be a little bit more challenging to justify the inclusion of it today versus in 1989. So, yeah, um, maybe I'm wrong, but that that that's my theory, and I'm I'm sticking to it. So. Also, in 1989, they had just put Harvey Dent back in a Batman movie played by Lando Calrissian. So um, maybe they were thinking there was some marketing potential there. Who knows? That's I, I I did not think about that. That's actually that's a very good very good point. But um, I'm still I still want to see a Lando Calrissian Harvey Dent, Harvey Dent, Billy D Williams Harvey Dent. Couldn't remember his name for a second there. Yeah, no, I know what you meant. And you know what? Look, I okay, I'm. I'm I want to find a politic way to put this. Um, I was excited for Batman Forever. I mean, I was 14 years old, and I wasn't I wasn't happy to see Tim Burton go. I certainly wasn't happy to see Michael Keaton go. But I had seen uh, Tombstone, fucking loved it. I'd been a, a Top Gun fan for quite a while. And so the idea of casting Val Kilmer as Batman, it just seemed so natural. You know, I didn't need... I don't think very many people needed a lot of imagination to see Val Kilmer as Batman. It just seemed very, very obvious. So that part I was okay with. But it just felt like implicit in this, it was going to be a little bit of... I, I wouldn't go so far as... It was going to be this weird sort of... Batman Forever, I before it even came out, I kind of realized it was going to be a sort of a a middle ground between a warm reboot and a retcon and i think it's actually sort of a first in superhero cinema in that way that you know things changed that radically while still maintaining when you think about it the same continuity 
And one of the things that became very apparent was that Billy D. Williams was not going to get his shot at being Two-Face. And I felt, I'll be honest with you, dude, I felt a little bit gypped by that. You know, I mean, I liked, um, what's his, I liked Tommy Lee Jones in, what was it called? Uh, The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed him in that. I thought he was just a, a, a fun character in that movie. And I thought that, you know, an actor who can, who, who can do that. And, and I didn't, I mean, I hadn't seen Lonesome Dove. I hadn't seen a whole lot of his other stuff, but I had seen The Fugitive by that point. And I thought, well, he can, he did great in The Fugitive. So, you know, to my 14 year old mind, it just seems a little inevitable that he's going to kick ass as Two-Face. But notwithstanding, it felt like that was sort of Billy D's role. That was his game to play. And I really felt like, especially in retrospect, you know, the idea of a Billy D. Williams two-face contrasted against Jim Carrey's Riddler, I think that would have been very dramatic, very powerful. And I think you would have, ultimately, to make that work, you might have needed actually a different director. Who knows? But it just felt like, you know, there was potential there that sort of got squandered. And I, I feel really bad about that to this day. I do, too. I also feel that there was a lot of potential in a Tommy Lee Williams two-face that was squandered. But that's, you know, I need to see the movie again because there's a lot that I liked about it and a lot that that I thought was kind of weird. But Two-Face was the one thing that stayed with my memory as being a disappointment in the film is that after the one really cool interrogation scene at the beginning where he's like all dark and sinister – after that, he became a bit of a pastiche in the rest of the film. And and Tommy Lee Williams, Tommy Lee Williams, Tommy Lee Jones could have done a lot more with that under a different script or a different director. But um, but Billy D, I mean, we all saw him in Batman, and we all thought, hey, that's Harvey Dent. All right, there's some promise there, you know. And and then it ended up not being fulfilled. I oh, yeah. And it's, 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 it happens. I mean, you have, you have shows, I mean, the Supergirl show, um, by the time this airs is well into its season and we haven't seen anything except for possibly the pilot, depending on who's, you know, where you get your TV from. And, um, they have characters like Hank Henshaw and Winslow shot in this, in the series. Are they going to turn those into their comic book, you know, necessity narratives? I don't know, but if they don't, I'm going to feel like there's a little bit of potential there that's lost. Yeah, and I tend to agree. I mean, I would almost want to say it's like Kurt Connors in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films where yes. he's in yes. every single one of those movies, but like fuck all happens. And that <clears throat> I mean and again, I mean it seems like every time you and I get together, we seem to want to talk about about Spider-Man and that's weird, but whatever. Um <laughs> the fact is, I kind of I've always thought that number 1, not to not to criticize Amazing uh The Amazing Spider-Man duology such as it is um we did get uh a a, a lizard storyline there and you know what it was fucking awesome so i'm certainly not criticizing that but it just as with billy d williams it, it just i watched those films and it felt like every single one of them was making a promise you know that we are going to see sooner or later kurt connors and i forget that actor's name i'd know it if i heard it but we are going to get like Dylan Baker, I think is his name. That's going to be his role to play. And he's someday he's going to do it. It may be Spider-Man four, maybe Spider-Man five. We're going to see that character at some point become the lizard. And it 
just felt like it was going to be just this amazing moment simply because of by the time it finally would have happened, the amount of investment the audience had in that character, the amount of investment the fans especially had in that character, and fuck all happened with it. And it just feels like it's one of those great losses of superhero cinema, maybe even more so actually than Billy D. Williams losing out on Two-Face, where, you know, there was something going on with Dylan Baker. It had been teased. It had been promised. You know, we were all – people can talk whatever shit they want about Venom. I never gave a damn about seeing Venom in those movies. I wanted to see The Lizard. I wanted that in a big, bad way. And anyway, I mean – Whatever, it's not worth losing your temper over. I'm just saying that it it would have been nice, you know? Yeah, yeah, it would have so, been. And here I am, I'm ranting at a, a Spider-Man fan about his own property, so I guess I don't, <laughs> I don't have to convince you about anything. So, fair. we need to do a fucking Spider-Man episode about something. We need to do that. We should. We should do a couple, yeah. yeah. Um, but in the meantime, I think we're on a Batman episode. Yes. And now... Uh, <laughs> Now, before you uh, mention all your other, you, you know, where, where it is that people can find you and stuff, I, I need you to do that. But before you, we get into that, um, do you have any, any, any parting shots on, on either of these two issues at this point? Do you have anything more you want to contribute? Super glad I read them. Super glad that I, I got to, to see this era of Batman. Um, r- made me want even more to, to dive into this. Um, a passing um, note Mm-hmm. Is that one of the letters in the letters column for this issue is from Bob Rosakis. Yes. Which I thought was really neat since he goes on to have quite the history with DC later. Um, By the end of this decade, in fact, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think uh, yeah, 1975 or so. So anyways, that was neat to see. But yeah, Two-Face was cool. Um, the, the ghost story was neat. And Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams can kick some serious ass on Batman. So I'm looking forward to that. And it was, it was good to talk about him here. Yeah, I, I had a blast, dude. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, um, you've got a podcast of your own that people need to be listening to. So why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, man? Okay, so my daughter and I um, have been comics fans. I, I molded her into a comics fan from a young age. Actually, guys, if you want to he- listen, it, it's actually really cool. And at the same time, it's actually really sweet, too. It, it was really sweet that you were able to do this. Her, her evolution as a comics fan, you can actually listen to it on From Crisis to Crisis a little bit, you know? Like you, you would uh, send – I think – didn't Lily, when she was like a little girl, have like a sort of cameo on that on that show? Yes, she did. She was there. That was really, really neat. She was so excited to be on there too. Yeah. So, so anyway, sorry to interrupt, but I just I, – I, <laughs> No, I, no, it's I okay. I couldn't let that go. Well, it, it's what you got to do as a parent. If you want your if you want your kids to be nerds with you, you've got to make a concerted effort to expose them to nerdy things, and that's what I did. So, um, started reading comics to her when she was six, and although she kind of uh, bailed a little bit on the medium um, around ten or eleven, she still likes it. She just doesn't pursue it as actively. But I came to her with the idea of talking about. Um, the early comics that involve the characters from all the movies we've been watching, Iron Man, Hulk, and uh, uh, all that. So we started on a journey on a podcast called Avengers Inspirations, talking about all of the early adventures of characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, she's 13 now, and she's 
she is snarky as anything and, and a real fun uh, podcasting partner. So I encourage you to take a look at that. That is over at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. Or if you just do a search for Avengers Inspirations on the internet or on iTunes, you will find the Complete Marvel Reading Order podcast feed that you can subscribe to there. Badass. Well, uh, John, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for joining in on this episode, but I also want to thank you in advance for all the other stuff that you're going to be joining in with me for. Um, it's just the nature of things and how it's worked out. Some of those episodes have already been recorded, so unfortunately, you know, you really you, you can't be really part of those. But um, for the things that you can be part of, and some of which we've, even though we're recording this first one now, we've actually already recorded some of those other ones, because, hey, podcasting really enjoy your, your perspective on things but also really appreciate you taking the time you know so much of your time because this i know is a huge imposition upon you and i really do appreciate you you know just taking the time to uh, uh join in with me on all of this this has been a real blast i know we're gonna have a ball with everything that's coming next oh yeah it's gonna be lots of fun speaking of what's coming next uh john what are we talking about next week Okay, so same era, different side of the tracks. We're going to be taking a look at Superman, issue numbers 248 and 258, which even though they're separated by a span of nine or ten issues, they involve one uh, character in common. So they're a bit of a two-part piece. And uh, I've already read these. really looking forward to getting into them. So Bronze Age Superman coming at you next week. Yeah, and, uh, you know, can't wait. And, and again, I'm not trying to beat this to death. Dude, seriously, thank you so much. And um, It was a ton of fun. Yeah, and so to all of you, thanks for uh, joining in this week. See you next week. Uh, bye, everybody. Take care. the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>